and welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 43. I'm Nick Dixon, here with Scourge of the Censorship Industrial Complex, Mr. Toby Young. Coming up, a possible coup in Russia. Theresa May have gone to a lockdown party, and Taylor Swift rejects Meghan, plus loads more, and of course, peak woke. But Toby, I thought we'd start with this Russia coup that I don't understand at all. I'm not convinced anyone really understands it. They're just sort of pretending to. It's all it's all mad. But anyway, Prigozhin, however you say his name, the leader of Wagner, top lads, uh, went on a bit of a march. Looked like he was going to do a coup. Leo got very excited when we were covering it live on Headliners because he was desperate for it to be a coup. I didn't think it was going to work personally, just knowing how these things are. I think people were desperate for it to work and they, you know, they want this war to be sorted and Putin to be gone, but I don't think it's that simple. And uh, Prigozhin has now said he wasn't attempting to overthrow Putin. Putin's done a weird speech where he seemed kind of angry, but he, he said they will get what they want. They'll be able to transfer to Belarus and so on, but he seems somewhat angry about it all anyway. And um, I don't know. I don't really claim to understand it all, Toby. All I know is that Wagner are top lads and don't mess with them because they might send you a, a, a sledgehammer like they did with the EU, a sledgehammer in a violin case, which means we know you and we like hitting people with sledgehammers. What do you think? Yeah, well, um, you're right that there seem to be a lot of motivated reasoning going on um, amongst the people reporting on the coup. You know, first it was, you know, coup has been launched, Putin's days are numbers, um, Pogosian marching on Moscow, he'll be there within 12 hours, Putin disappeared, likely Putin um, is facing internal attacks and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, it was like it, it was a foregone conclusion in the eyes of most reporters that Putin would be finished within 12 hours. And then they were slightly wrong footed by, you know, um, the coup petering out within 12 hours and getting nowhere near Moscow. Um, and uh, and then the, and then and then the reporting became Putin fatally weakened by coup attempt and beginning of the end for Putin, but not quite the end yet. Um, so, yeah, there seemed to be a lot of, as you say, uh, wishful thinking in the reportage about the coup. Um, but um, it, it did feel a bit like um, one, one, what, there are numerous conspiracy theories and we didn't manage to get through all of them when talking about this with uh, James Stellingpole for once. Um, but um, one conspiracy theory is that he wasn't really um, Pogosian, this is, that's probably not how you pronounce it, wasn't really trying to mount a coup. It was just a smokescreen um, to enable him to steal some nukes. That's all he wants. And now he's gone to Belarus on his private jet with the nukes in the hold, you know, in, in the baggage area. Um, and uh, that, that really does feel like the beginning of like a Mission Impossible movie, doesn't it? Or, or a Bond movie, you know, this kind of well-known mercenary and out-and-out villain you know, Mr. Toxic Masculinity mounts a coup against uh, a leader. Uh, but actually, it's just to disguise the fact that what he really wants to do is steal these nukes. And then that's the beginning of the movie. How does James Bond slash Ethan Hunt kind of get the nukes back from this kind of crazy mercenary warlord? Um, so, uh, yeah, but um, I, I, I expect it was... Um, you know, nothing more complicated than he had these criminal charges pending against him, initiated by Putin, wasn't happy about that, threatened Putin uh, by, you know, mounting this coup and Putin dropped the charges and he's now gone to Belarus. I don't think it was James, James Stellingpole's theory. The conspiracy theory he seemed to like is that it was all intended as a smokescreen. So um, the Wagner group 
Wagner, Wagner, the Wagner Group could um, relocate their 25,000 stormtroopers to north of Kiev. Belarus is just north of Kiev. So, you know, a- an attack on another flank can be opened up uh, against the Ukrainians. And this was just a brilliant ruse, probably orchestrated by the mastermind Putin himself. But it's not a particularly brilliant ruse because Putin lost seven aircraft um, <laughs> in the course of uh, trying to bat off this coup, uh, which isn't great. You know, would he really? sacrifice all those aircraft just to kind of create a smokescreen to and also you know the ukrainians won't now be unaware of the fact that there are these 20,000 25,000 mercenaries you know on their north flank i mean you know it's been all over the news their satellite cameras will have picked it up so that's a crackpot useless silly conspiracy theory like most of them anyway yeah i don't really have a hot take what about you no, well, as I say, I mean, I found myself totally somewhat uninterested in the war. And I think it comes down to a few things. One was just that it became clear quite early on that we don't know what's true. We saw all this propaganda on both sides, really. You know, Western and Ukrainian media sort of been like, we're winning, we're smashing it. And then Russia, of course, does the same. And so I was like, well, we can't actually discern who's winning. So I sort of lost interest at that point. And now I feel like those people who don't like football, where every bloke down the pub especially Leo and just blokes I've noticed in general, have a big theory on Ukraine. Some of your contributors, the Daily Skeptics, spend a lot of time on it. And that's impressive and everything, but it's just not, my brain just doesn't go there. I'm like, well, I'm not going to learn all about this war. I've kind of left it to them. I do feel like there's somebody, I just sort of, because you can call me sort of, you can say it's trivial, but I just, I just think we can't know what's going to happen. I don't really claim to understand it. So why even bother following it? I know it's not really what you're supposed to say as a sort of cultural commentator. It's just an area that I'm leaving I do know a bit from Callum because he's actually hung out with these people. I mean, he's actually met Wagner people and stuff. But um, I just replied. So I've yeah, just taken I... to trolling, really. I just, I'll tell you what I just put on Leo's thing. Leo did this really long, long explanation of what he thinks has happened, right? And he said that um, that, that uh, Prigozhin would make a better leader than Putin because he just wants to be rich and powerful, whereas Putin in his hubris wants to leave a legacy of reuniting the Soviet states. So I just replied, so what you're saying is Putin is motivated by d- deeper, more noble instincts than his materialist enemies, which is just, <laughs> that's the level I'm on. But um, all I know, Toby, is that, that, you know, Wagner are top lads. They've got great songs, great memes. You've seen these memes going around the internet. Putin's very smart and Zelensky's the bad one. That's all I know from just a cursory following of it. <laughs> The the top P. That's your take, is it? That's 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 that's, that's, that's poor, even by your standards. He's a he's a he's a brutal, homicidal sociopath. Um, uh, but he also has bad qualities, that, guys. <laughs> no, you're right. It is very bad. It is bad. I, sometimes on GB, I just take. I say to Leo, so you're pro, so pro Ukraine. For off combalance, I have to be pro Putin. But um, you, you didn't want to get into this. But my only thing about I'm just going to quickly say with Putin, right? As evil as he may be, at least we sort of know what he is, right? We sort of, he comes from the sort of older world, like former intelligence. I kind of see what he's doing. Zelensky is who puzzles me because I just don't know what's going on. Like, why does Trudeau and all the people I hate love him? You know, I just say, why does he come, keep making these appeals for weapons and money? Is it, is it to, because the West wants to get involved in this war and they get him to do that? So I have all these sort of questions, but I know this kind of annoys the kind of your yeah, side of things. That's... and. That's not great reasoning. It'd be a bit like saying, you know, <laughs> during the Second World War, well, at least we know what Hitler's about. You know, what you see is what you get with Hitler. Um, but this de Gaulle fellow, you know, uh, claims to be leader of the Free French, you know, is he is he on the level? Is he, you know, has he got, 
ulterior motives. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we don't know much about him. He's a bit critical of Churchill sometimes, don't like that. And a lot of these Francophiles uh, relocated to London, um, uh, they seem to love him. And I don't like those guys. You always smell of onions. You know, it's not, it's not, <laughs> this isn't great geopolitical foreign policy analysis. No, well, I did, I did flag that at the start. <laughs> But um, you don't know, think there's something new about the Zelensky phenomenon. There's something odd about it. Or I'm not saying that most people are saying it's not real or something like that. I just don't quite understand. I just don't quite get him. And why? Why do? And you don't think it's a problem that all the globalists we hate, like Trudeau, love him? No, I think I think you know just because they're just because they're wrong about some things doesn't mean they're wrong about everything. That I think is um, poor reasoning. It's a lot of people yeah. in the kind of. Just, you know, I, I, this is, I have this argument with James Dellingpole almost every week, but a lot of people in the community that grew up amongst lockdown skeptics, um, you know, were red pilled by that whole experience and now distrust everything promoted by the MSM and the establishment um, and just think, well, if, if Trudeau is taking the side of A, then I'm going to take the side of A's enemy because Trudeau is always wrong. But, um, you know, I can understand the distrust, um, but I don't think, um, you know, they're always wrong about everything uh, or that we should be sceptical about every single mainstream narrative. And I think I think this is a, this is uh, an exception. Um, and can I just uh, say one thing? For Zelensky, that? Zelensky, without being you know without being perfect, I think is certainly preferable to Putin. And you know, people say, well, wasn't Putin provoked? Didn't uh, wasn't the West a bit too aggressive in its expansion of NATO? What did they expect? They left him with no choice but to invade. That that feels like making excuses for Putin to me. The fact is, Russia are the aggressor in this war. Ukraine are an ally. It is a functioning liberal democracy, by no means perfect. I'm sure it has its shortcomings, but it's a damn sight preferable to Russia. Um, so, yeah, I'm on Zelensky's side. Um, I just wanted to reply with one thing that... And by the way, this, this works for the podcast. I mean, you're DeSantis, I'm Trump... You can be Zelensky, I'll be Putin. It's a, you know, it's a great balance on the podcast. I mean, because now I'm Wagner, so it's complicated. I don't, I don't know. Um, so I'm just sorry, sorry to be. I'm the comedian here, guys. So I'm sorry to trivialize the war. It's very, very serious. But uh, this is my only role because I'm not a proper journalist like Toby. But what about this, Toby? Someone wrote in a review here: atrocity propaganda. I'm quite alarmed to discover Toby has never heard atrocity propaganda. As to his urging his sons to go to the Ukraine, he reminds me of Rudyard Kipling, who lived to regret his urging. Well, now we're getting down and we got four stars there. We're losing stars now for things you said on other podcasts because you said that on the London Corning podcast, that thing about that's your true. son. You that's, didn't a even bit, say that. that's a bit unfair. Yeah, I didn't say it. It on is this a podcast. bit. I know. Because I, I thought that was a bit odd that you would actually go as far as, because I, you know, if it was if it was our war, if it was World War II or something, like that's one thing. But I was quite surprised to hear that you would send your sons into the Ukraine. Well, well, he's, I found no, that quite... he's, he's, he's misrepresenting me. Um, okay. I said that a friend of mine um, told me that his son had gone to Ukraine for a few months during his, I think during the summer, he's currently at university, um, to um, help with the food relief effort for displaced persons who've, you know, have to leave their homes because they're in conflict zones. And um, I thought that was quite good. And I said, I, 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 I wouldn't mind if my son wanted to do the same thing. I didn't say I wanted him to put on a uniform and become a mercenary and join the Ukrainian army. No. Um, and on this coup, then, people are getting very excited. And it's not clear to me that 
Fergozin or anyone else would be better than Putin, would they? I mean, why is that? I mean, Leo's got his reason. No, no. His rationale is that they're more shallow, but is that enough? No, I think he'd probably be worse. I mean, I, 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 I'd be even less comfortable about Prigozhin having his finger hovering over the nuclear button, you know, given that Russia is still at war. I mean, we don't have any guarantee that Prigozhin would end the war with Ukraine if he became the president of Russia. Um, I think until now, he's been urging Putin to be more aggressive, probably privately urging him to use tactical nukes. So, And I imagine you know, if he wanted to consolidate his legitimacy as Putin's successor, which he'd need to do quite quickly if he sees power in a coup, I mean, in due course, it'd have to be an election. I imagine the best way to win that election would be to uh, win the war in Ukraine by any means necessary. So yeah, I don't think it would be a, better than the status quo at all. What do you think to Leo's claim? Prigozhin just wants to be rich and powerful. He'd let Russia return to being a gangster state. The oligarchs would continue to suck the wealth from Russia, but they wouldn't be actively self-immolating by continuing an impossible occupation of an indigestible country. I think that's Quite naively well optimistic. Leo? Yeah, good, okay. good. Yeah, very, very eloquent, but naive. Okay. Well, I don't know why I'm bringing up Leo as if he's the main expert, but I just thought it was quite an interesting thread. And I don't know anything about it, as I readily admitted. So that, maybe that's that section then. Uh, we we managed to not fall out too much. I have to be very careful about as well about we have to be careful about misrepresenting James on this podcast because that's not gone very well in the that's when he true. finds out. Yeah. He did say something about James's conspiracy to start, and I thought, well, hang on, did he say that? Because we've got to be careful. Um, so, do you want to move on to this Titanic? So, obviously, the Titanic thing was a massive story, the submersible and the tragedy of the people dying in, in it. And I had to cover that on headliners as, as it was just hap- as it had happened that evening uh, that we knew that we found out they definitely died. And it was quite a strange thing to cover because then Lewis Schaefer was saying mad things. I mean, one of the things he said was that they died of wokeness. And as the host, I had to be all Toby and moderate about it. I go, well, I didn't exactly die of wokeness, Toby, uh, Lewis, but I see what you were doing. And what he was saying was there was this guy, Stockton Rush, who was the CEO. And he said uh, that he didn't want to hire 50-year-old white guys because they weren't inspirational. And some people have been using this to say, look, you go woke, you know, you die in a submarine, basically. You, you, you can't get rid of the experienced white men. And then, of course, there's the leftist side of it. But let's look at that part first. What did you make of that, Toby? Yeah, no, there, there are, I mean, I, I think it's always quite uh, distasteful, the way in which these tragedies are immediately weaponized by combatants in the culture war. And um, usually the left are, you know, um, more sociopathic than the right so whenever there's a mass shooting mass shooting in a american high school you know within 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 you know when the bodies are still warm when when the last bullet has barely left the gun from the teenage shooter before he commits suicide um uh, the left are, are, are screaming about banning assault weapons gun control the NRA and the rest of it. And you think, couldn't you just leave it 24 hours, you know, before weaponizing this in your ongoing political struggle to reverse the Second Amendment? Uh, So that always slightly turns my stomach. But in this case, as you've said, it isn't just the left that's guilty of that. We'll get on to who on the left is guilty of it in a second, but kind of slightly distasteful to, to kind of bring up this interview with the CEO of what Oceangate saying that, he believed in um, uh, uh, diversity hiring 
um, rather than just picking the best person for the job because how how smart did you need to be really to drive a sub? But he sort of almost it wasn't the wokest thing to say, really, was it? It was like, uh, you know, you're not supposed to say, I believe in diversity hiring for this particular job because it's not very demanding, you know, which is more or less what he said. Um, you're supposed right. to say that um, diversity hiring um, is in a way meritocratic because all you're doing is compensating for the increased challenges that people from minority backgrounds have faced. Um, so they're not necessarily going to be any worse at the job. Uh, you're just being a bit more flexible because you're allowing for the fact that they may have had to work much harder and so may not have achieved quite the same credentials as someone who's actually going to be no better at the job the but who happens to be white but yeah so he seemed to have got the kind of rhetoric of <laughs> affirmative action completely arse over tit um and ended up saying something which turned out to be quite non-woke but anyway i don't think it should have been brought up quite so soon after the tragedy but i don't think it was as bad as what ash Sarka said um yeah, yeah. we'll uh, get on th- can uh, i just comment on that I was gonna, so you're right he's basically yeah. so you're saying it's sort of like going hey this job isn't that hard even black lesbians can do it exactly that's, <laughs> that's, that's completely saying, yeah. but yeah, yeah. No, i just wanted to introduce before you went on to the ash thing so that's that, that's our side of it where yeah we have to be careful like you say not to go hang and get won't go broke or worse in this case but yeah the, but the left were very were appalling on it on this very thing they, they like you said they wasted no time and ash Sarka said if the super rich can spend two hundred fifty thousand pounds on vanity jaunts 2.4 miles beneath the ocean then they've not they're not being taxed enough which was disgusting. And the other one I wanted to add, you can comment on, is New Republic uh, posted this headline and this story. Ocean Gate CEO missing in Titanic sub had history of donating to GOP candidates. And this was while it was still ongoing and we didn't even know their fate, I believe. It was at a peak sort of time anyway. And then, of course, the other one was Snopes, which we could also comment on, which is their bizarre blaming of Elon Musk. There was this claim... When news broke of the failed communications, a number of news reports and posts claimed that the missing submersible was relying on Elon Musk's Starlink satellites for its communications. And then Snopes said this claim is true. Oceangate, the company that operates the submersible, tweeted right before the expedition that it was relying on Starlink. So they, they claimed it was true. Then they had to downgrade it to unproven, you said. And then they eventually, you said they switched it to false. But any, any comment on all of those then, Toby? Yeah, well, yeah, the, 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 it was like when the right, tried to exploit this tragedy to pursue their culture war agenda the left said hold my beer and (laughs) out came this outpouring of complete kind of sociopathic horrible rubbish um but uh yeah the the well i think they i think they probably the most the most the most egregious of those three examples you mentioned is the Snopes example because because you know it's one thing for um, an avowedly left-wing publication like the New Republic um, to um, flag up you know the link between the GOP and the CEO of Oceangate um, but um, it's kind of you know you'd sort of expect that but Snopes is supposed to be you know, neutral. It's supposed to be an arbiter of what's reliable and what's unreliable information. And they, and you know, they're, they're supposed to have these kind of marvelous fact-checking chops. You know, they're supposed to be one of the most reliable, trusted fact-checking websites in the world. And how hard would it have been to 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 check? 
to fact check the claim that Starlink was somehow responsible for the implosion of the Titan. I mean, satellite signals cannot penetrate beneath the surface of the ocean. Um, you know, uh, and and the idea that that's how that's how you know submarines communicate with um <laughs> via satellite i mean it's an easy thing to check um uh, uh, they could have you know established one phone call to you know spacex um uh, would have would have someone could have explained that this was a completely obviously false story but they didn't bother checking it was one of those too good to check stories so they uh, immediately acclaimed it as true and then instead of when it became absolutely obvious it wasn't true they didn't even downgrade it to false immediately they, they put it in the unproven category it's like their credibility for my part is now just on the floor i mean they weren't that credible to begin with but this just reveals their political bias it's not fact checking it's just a rhetorical device for trying to discredit anyone to the left of joe biden yeah, and that, no shock there for many of our listeners, I'm sure, but it was a particularly egregious example. And when you say to the right, to the right of Joe Biden, did I say to the left? I mean to the right. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, that, that's that's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you say the the left said hold my beer, my perception was that the left really did it first, and actually that over fifties thing was less known. I heard it on the Michael Knowles show, but it wasn't really that well known. The Ash Saga thing, she came out of the gate pretty quick. But yeah, and so I think the there was a little bit of it on the right with the over fifty white men comment, but it was far more prevalent on the left and pretty disgusting. And um, I don't know, yeah, that's pretty much that story. There's no real point touching on the tragedy of it. We're talking about the cultural aspect of it because that's what we do on this podcast, but obviously it was tragic as well. And the, the odd person saying that it didn't happen, I mean, Leia Halpin on Twitter said that she was suspicious of it and she gave an easy win to David Baddiel there because it was this thing of like, I'm suspicious about it. Like, you know, did it even happen or it's fake news type thing? That's where I go. That's where I, you know, you leave even me. I've been known to engage in the odd conspiracy theory, but you leave me there with that one. So should we do this Taylor Swift story? This is uh, a fun one. Yes. It was a bit of a fun uh, diversion after that story. It's Taylor Swift and Megan. So Taylor Swift rejected a handwritten letter to appear on Megan's podcast. So Megan wrote this heartfelt handwritten letter to Taylor Swift and Taylor rejected it via a representative Far from sending her own handwritten note, she was just basically like, you have to talk to my sister about that. So she completely rejected it, wasn't interested. And uh, and on the back of this, we've also learned a lot more about the whole project. We, we said last week that they're being cancelled by Spotify, but we've learned more. The Wall Street Journal reported, Archwell employees and associates say the company often lacks direction and that its founders at times seem surprised by the work required to finish entertainment projects. And it is a lot of work. I do two podcasts a week and they are a lot of work. And you can imagine this might be a bit much for Harry. Apparently, he, um, he struggled to come up with ideas. Uh, he had a show idea about misinformation, lol. Um, he, he had various ideas that didn't work. I think there's one of them where he, I, I don't have it here, but he, he oh yeah, I do have it here. He, he, is, is this is Dan Wooten writing this. His completely impractical and impossible to deliver ideas included interviewing Vladimir Putin, Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> and Donald Trump about childhood trauma, and Pope Francis about religion, <laughs> according to Bloomberg. I mean, that would have been an amazing show. So, uh, Donald, I know, obviously, I lost my mother. Did you have anything comparable? I mean, come on, that's a great podcast, <laughs> but it uh, would never happen. I mean, imagine that. You've spent all this money on Harry. You're a Spotify executive. You're like, you're deep in the hole to these cretins and then you're like any ideas how we kind of kind of need something um what if i interview trump about his childhood you're like for fuck's sake <laughs> that would be so good um anyway they just they generally had no clue toby and taylor swift wasn't interested what do you think 
Yeah, well, I was um, uh, quite pleased that uh, this um, uh, super agent in Hollywood, Jeremy Zimmer, chief executive of the United Talent Agency, um, has described uh, the Duchess of Sussex as, be- as being talentless. Um, turns out Meghan Merkel was not a great audio talent or necessarily any kind of talent, um, he said uh, at the uh, Cannes uh, Advertising Festival. And you know, he added, just because you're famous doesn't make you great at something. Yeah, if only someone had told Meghan and Harry this before or told Spotify. Uh, but I think that that, that, that that they should now, I mean, you know, last week, I think I suggested that the way to turn this around and actually create a successful podcast would be to create a podcast called The Grifters, um, you know, in which they kind of crow about how they've kind of pulled off these kind of amazing cons of people like the CEO of, of, of Spotify and, and Netflix. Um, but now they should obviously add the word talentless and make it even more irresistible. The Talentless Grifters starring Harry and Meghan. I definitely listen to that. Yeah. Talentless effing grifters. TFG. So welcome yeah, to it. TFG. Yeah, TF- hey, welcome to TFG with me, Harry and, and Megs talking about uh, our life and, and grifting in, in Hollywood. That'd be so good. And I, I still say it should have that element of like their p- private lives and how like yeah, Megan locked me in the in the bathroom the other day because I'd done something wrong. I'd, I'd been toxic, <laughs> toxically masculine, so she didn't speak to me for six weeks. Stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should actually to 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 really ram the point home. We should call it effing talentless grifters. Uh, yeah. So yeah, FTG would be even better. That's another way of doing it. Yeah, I, I mean, they're all good ideas, Toby, but we may ne- they may never see the light of day now because not only are they banned from Spotify, not banned, but dropped, they also may be dropped from Netflix. Uh, in Dan Morton's article, he says, a senior Hollywood source told me Netflix wants out too. They're envious the Spotify exit could come so quickly. The contract with Harry and Meghan hasn't delivered. It's been a nightmare to navigate from start to finish, but it expires in uh, 2025, I think. Oh, no, the, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I can't tell if it's Spotify or Netflix. I think, I think it's the, um, yeah, I think the Netflix one expires in 2025, so they can't get out of it so quickly. But yeah, I can imagine they would run out of it. I mean, it's all very predictable though, isn't it? How is it ever going to work? They're just moaning repeatedly about the royal family, claiming everyone's racist. It had a very limited shelf life, didn't it? I mean, I suppose the documentary did okay. The book might have done all right, but it's sort of, you yeah, can't I, really I'm, endlessly... I'm, are you are you beginning to feel just ever so slightly sorry for them? I mean, for Harry, Harry yeah. one thing, yeah, not not Megan, not Megan, because she's just a psychopathic narcissist woman. I've known these type of women, Toby, and you can't you can't sympathise with <laughs> you, them. You've you've dated them. Um, we don't but, even uh, have to go there, but <laughs> they're not really people. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think like you know, um, she obviously is. Um, a psychopathic narcissist um but um you know you feel like at some point you know so much kind of misfortune will befall her that it might humanize her and uh, i'm beginning to i'm just beginning to feel the first twinges of sympathy for her because everything's gone so badly for her in the past 12 months her podcast was just such a calamity um and um the Netflix documentary didn't work out as they'd hoped. You know, she's constantly craving approval, attention. She obviously wants to be loved and respected. And it's just going in the opposite direction on every metric. And at some point, I think, you know, 
maybe I'm sort of I'm not, I'm not quite there yet, but at some point I can imagine just beginning to feel the first yeah. twinges of sympathy. Yeah, I think I'm at a similar point to you. That I think I had a little thought of that the other day, even with Megan, but I, but I'm not quite there. And and you, it's hard to get there because you know if you were cancelled or something. She would 100% back it. You know what I mean? Like she's 100% against us and well, wants she, us to be destroyed. Yeah. And she she tried to get Piers Morgan cancelled, didn't she? Um, yes. She actually, you know, she actually, I think, didn't she contact the CEO of ITV um, uh, when Piers Morgan questioned the veracity of things she said in her interview with Oprah? Yeah, she was one of the complainants. Um, ridiculous. So, yeah. She no, would have she, no she, sympathy she, for you. No, that's true. That's true. But that doesn't necessarily mean you can't have sympathy for her. No, true. We should have no sympathy for her. We should be we should be Christian about it. Yeah, at you're some right. point, not yet. At some point, not yet. <laughs> uh, forgiving Megan, the, the the documentary that's not not coming out for a while. Um, all right. Well, let's move on and do this. Uh, Theresa May at the lockdown party was it a party? Was May there? So this is a story in Guido Forks. So now. This was the Anne Jenkins lockdown breaking birthday bash in Eleanor Lang's office. And it wasn't an isolated event. Just two weeks prior, when the country was in an even stricter lockdown, she hosted a, quote, socially distanced party. And there's this Instagram post that has popped up. And, uh, and apparently she was sort of communicating with Guido about this until they, she sort of realized the content of it and then sort of stopped communicating. But this post was from the Women to Win, was a company, and, and it says... When Anne Jenkin and Theresa May founded Women to Win 15 years ago, there were 17 conservative women MPs. Today, there are 87. Seems a few too many, doesn't it, really? And we think that deserves a socially distanced party. And uh, there is no such thing, as Guido points out, there was no such thing as a socially distanced party that was allowed. You know, everyone was told to be working from home at the time. So there was no justification for an indoor social celebration, even if it was a work event. And Guido has found out that that Boris Johnson and Cameron came in via Zoom, so they weren't there. But Theresa May was there in person, and that's one thing. But then the more problematic is the event was followed by a celebratory drinks described as a birthday party, and Theresa May stuck around briefly for a few pictures that apparently left swiftly, and Guido has seen no pictorial evidence she had a lockdown-breaking drink, whereas whilst one of Guido's sources insists masks were worn at all times, the private photos differ. From the publicity photos, so there's these absurd mass photos, then you see the private ones, they're not wearing them. And it's like, was Theresa May there? Is she a hypocrite for the things she said about Boris, judging him? And it's all a continuation of this COVID theatre, Toby. I mean, obviously Guido is trying to just hit back at the sort of an exposure hypocrisy. We're all supposed to be obsessed with Partygate. We're all supposed to hate Johnson. He's like, well, guess what? Theresa May was also there. Everyone was doing everything from the start. I was never surprised about any of it. And it's the continuation of the absurd, what we have now, and this is not perhaps original, but we have, we have the absurd party gate nonsense that has to go on and on because the reality is lockdowns were wrong and everyone needs to say they were wrong. We're so sorry we did that. We don't deserve to be in government really. Hope you'll forgive us. Something like that would need to be said, right? But that's never going to happen. So what, what, what happens instead is a, a sort of constant self-flagellation about party gate, attack, attacking others like Boris, but then also a self-flagellation that constantly... They have to constantly be like, oh, yeah, sorry, I was at this thing. I thought it was this. And this is just going to go on forever because it's because of the, the, the central lie that, that they were, that lockdowns were good and that they were ever following them. What do you think, Toby? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, as you say, it's a bit boring, this kind of endless stream of um, uh, politicians, officials, 
breaking the rules that they were expecting the rest of us to follow. But as a lockdown skeptic, um, I welcome these scandals because it'll just make it that much easier um, to persuade people to ignore another lockdown. And that in turn will make it harder for politicians to impose one. Um, you know, I'm looking, if there ever is another lockdown uh, declared or even mooted, um, uh, I think the most effective uh, tool to try and discredit that as a national strategy will just be a video compilation of all the people who imposed lockdown, senior politicians, senior officials, public health officials, who were caught breaking the rules. I mean, just, just showing a, you know, a 15-minute video, like a reel of all the people. What One clip in which they're saying, you must stay at home. Next clip, them swigging champagne, laughing their heads off, ripping off their masks. Uh, it just, you know, it just makes it so clear that they made fools of us. They didn't actually believe these rules were remotely effective. It was all just political theatre. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so, you know, insofar as this has given me another clip to include in my anti-lockdown propaganda film, um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, but I think you're being a touch optimistic, Toby, it, because the anti... Let me see. Because the um, self-flagellation theatre continues, they are preventing you from having that moment. So we've seen the Times poll where people still believe lockdown should have been stricter, particularly young people... And I'd like to believe you, and you will have some evidence and you will have a case, but they have to uphold, as I'm sure you know, this endless inquiry, this endless party nonsense to avoid that very thing, which is you and people like you saying we shouldn't have lockdowns because you didn't even follow them. They're not even followable. They don't work. The reason they have to keep this going is they have to maintain no lockdowns did work and are noble. It's just that some people didn't follow them and those people must be punished and those people are terrible. And, and, and it'll never, no amount of evidence will ever change that, that central narrative that someone, some ideal hypothetical person was following them perfectly, a kind of some Keir Starmer, even though we know he didn't. There's some hypothetical government official, right, that followed everything perfectly and everyone is falling short of him or her. And that's the real problem. Not that the lockdowns were ridiculous in the first place and unworkable and that obviously you can't go around wearing a mask on your face as a human. But do you see my point that they will never give up on that central big lie? Yeah, you mean you mean the problem in some way with these stories is not that they expose the fact that lockdowns were pointless and the people imposing them weren't observing them, um, because there's another more powerful interpretation, which is that the rules were effective, uh, and that's why everyone should have followed them. And the reason for condemning Boris Johnson, Theresa May, Bernard Jenkins for not following them is not because they had imposed them on us and not following themselves was hypocritical. It's because they were endangering lives by not following the rules. And they should have been. They should have been modeling good behavior, which was clearly socially beneficial. Um, uh, that's where they fell short. Yeah, yeah I'm sure that's true. Um, but uh, and, and certainly the, um, the uh, Baroness Hallett inquiry uh, doesn't fill me with confidence that um, uh, there'll be a proper forensic cost-benefit analysis of the lockdown policy. Uh, quite the opposite seems to be taking place. Uh, Matt Hancock was testifying this morning, uh, saying the only reason lockdowns didn't work better is because we didn't impose them sooner 
and harder, uh, which is the kind of standard lockdown uh, yeah. zealot defense. And um, really frustratingly, I don't know if you've spotted this, you probably have, but I don't think a single skeptical journalist um, uh, has been invited to testify um, to the Hallett inquiry, but 17, no less than 17 members of Independent Sage, some of whom were basically journalists, uh, which was the kind of zero COVID lobby group. Um, they literally wanted to turn Britain into China um, uh, permanently and thought that was the only solution. And of course, one of the leaders of that group was Susan Mitchie, who is a uh, uh, self-confessed proud member of the uh, British Communist Party, um, but uh, known as Stalin's granny, um, because she once tried to smuggle um, some Samistat communist literature into the Labour Party conference uh, by putting it in a pram, uh, which she claimed her grandchild was in. <laughs> wow. Stalin's granny. Anyway, all these people have been invited to testify before the Hallett inquiry and will no doubt say we should have locked down harder and sooner. Uh, not, 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 almost, almost no skeptics at all. I think Shinetra Gupta and Carl Hennigan have in their capacity as, you know, professors at Oxford. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly disappointing. But on the plus side, Nick, it doesn't really matter uh, because even if all the all the skeptics were summoned to testify, and even as Bar- Baroness Hallett concluded that actually locking down was a catastrophic policy error and the cost of it far outweighed the negligible benefits even if she comes to that conclusion and her firm advice to future governments when faced with another pandemic is not to lock up the healthy as well as the sick um uh, even if she comes to that conclusion it'll just be ignored within weeks of the next pandemic breaking out because that's what happened in 2020 the pandemic preparedness plan um, which was based in part on the conclusions of three previous public inquiries into epidemics and pandemics, um, very firmly advised the British government in the event of another pandemic, don't immediately quarantine the healthy as well as the sick. The social costs will be far greater than any medical benefits. And that was junked, binned within a couple of weeks because it became politically expedient to do so. And the excuse was, oh, well, that was about flu. That wasn't about another type of virus that would only only apply to a flu epidemic well no no it didn't it applied to this epidemic and if you'd followed the bloody advice you wouldn't be in such a pickle now um yes. but uh, yeah so it doesn't really matter what happens in this you know one billion pound public inquiry which is going to keep lawyers um you know um uh, uh in clover drinking champagne in their holiday homes in tuscany for the next 10 bloody years it doesn't matter what they conclude because even if they concluded correctly that lockdowns were a complete disaster that would just be completely ignored by you know prime minister keir starmer when another pandemic breaks out yep and the lawyers will be drinking with no masks non-social distancing while telling us we should and yeah i mean i mean yes jeremy hunt said that bizarre thing about we focus on influenza not COVID. it's like yeah so what it doesn't seem radically different but to the layman but yeah and the other point yes i stand by my point is more like a religious decree so nothing can disprove it. Like I say, it just relies on this hypothetical person who followed the rules perfectly. Like you say, we didn't lock down hard and early enough. That They'll always say that. That's unfalsifiable, isn't it? So they'll just keep saying that forever, basically. And, yep. you, and But there is no person that followed it. Boris didn't follow it. Sabir Cormer didn't follow it. Cummings didn't follow it. Theresa May didn't follow it. Who followed? Kirsty, uh, what's her name? Kay Burley didn't follow it. You just go on and on. No one was following yeah, anything. Matt Hancock. 
Matt Hancock. But we, but there's this, I tell you, this hypothetical idea that someone followed it perfectly, and we just have to do that again. It's maddening religious nonsense. The funny thing is, like you say, we'll end up locking down again. Will Sweden be the only country that just never locks down? Like we have another thing, everyone immediately locks down. They follow their habit, and Sweden just always. Yeah. Would everyone just go to but Sweden it, it, at the first? Yeah, and yeah, I certainly will next time. But yeah, and it'll. I mean, given how little the Swedish economy has suffered compared to the economies of all those countries that locked down, given, you know, the mental health of a generation of school children in Sweden hasn't been destroyed. You know, the health service in Sweden is still functioning because they didn't turn it into a COVID only service for 18 months. You know, if there, if there are kind of, you know, if there are, if there are three or four more pandemics in the next 25 years, by the end of that 25 year period, Sweden will be the, the largest economy in the world with the <laughs> biggest standing army. It'll be bigger than China. It's like, yeah, we should probably move there now. Yeah. Yeah. We should actually, there or Romania with, with the, the top G, but that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> I just threw that in just to get my weekly mention. Are you going um, are you going to interview him in your podcast? Well, I had some I had some messages with Andrew. I think I can say he, he followed me last week as listeners will know. I had a few messages. He does seem quite concerned about the situation. And um I'm worried about him. I'm worried about him. I don't think he's going to come on my podcast. I don't think it's well known enough. The options there though, it is there. And um I'm just I'm just worried Toby. I'm just worried for Andrew really. And he, he's training an awful lot because of his health, mental health. He can't sleep. It, this is publicly stated. So he's just training instead. So he's getting incredibly strong. And you look at his training videos. He he smashed the guy's bicep the other day, and he ended up in hospital. I'm like, not sure I'd want to spar Tate, but um, but yeah, I'm a bit worried about him. But um, he's he's welcome to come on my podcast anytime. He is doing a few more podcasts now. He's going to do the James English one, I think. So it should be very interesting. But yeah, that's all I'll say on the top G for this week. We have to get a mention in every week. Um. And maybe it's time to move on to this Daniel Korski story, Toby, that I know you were very big on. I've got a little bit here just to introduce it. So this is, of course, the mayoral candidate, Daniel Korski, and he's had a bit of a me too here because Daisy Goodwin has said that he groped her uh, back in the day. I don't know. When was it? It was a few years ago. And uh, Yeah, I think it was in, yeah, it was during the Cameron era. So I think it was... Around about ago. 2013, yeah. 10 yeah. years ago. Yeah, 2013. Yeah. And she says here, Miss um, Goodwin wrote, Korski, who was quite a few years younger than me, which makes this already a bit different from your classic Me Too, showed me into a room dominated by a portrait of Mrs. Thatcher. Then, to my surprise, he said that my sunglasses made me look like a Bond girl and put his feet on my chair when we sat down at the table. I attempted to turn the conversation to turning exports into unmissable TV. This was about an unpromising TV idea they had about... What was it making the taking the home office or the trade? Yeah, I think it was, into- it was about making a, a fly on the wall documentary about the Department of Trade, which sounds <laughs> as, as sounds like a made up idea to try and entice. Yeah. I mean, entice one of Alan Partridge's attractive uh, older yeah. idea. Uh, Come to Downing Street to discuss making a documentary <laughs> about the Department of Trade. It's like what? what yeah. It does beg the question: Well, why did she go? You know, such an unpromising idea. Yeah, um, maybe, in my but, hotel but, room. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's like the sort of thing it's like the sort of excuse that yeah that um uh harvey weinstein but we shouldn't presume his his guilt no, um clearly. so uh yeah and just to finish her statement at the end of the meeting we both stood up and korski to my astonishment put his hand on my breast i looked at the hand and then in my most affronted voice said are you actually touching my breast which is i suppose quite a good question do you just sort of highlight what's happening um he dropped his hand and laughed nervously I swept out in what can only be called 
high dudgeon. So, so Toby, I mean, it does seem plausible. Was it just, was that a sort of very clumsy common attempt that, or is that, is that what a Me Too is? I mean, I mean, well, it's, I, it's odd, isn't it? Because, um, you know, it, it, you can, you can imagine, you know, a Me Too, I mean, often these Me Too incidents take this very form. It's like, they're often a little bit puzzling, you know, I mean, let's suppose for the sake of argument that it really happened. Um, and I don't want to presume his guilt. Um, but let's suppose uh, hypothetically that it happened. Um, what was he hoping to gain from it? Was he thinking that this is the way to seduce a sophisticated, successful, attractive female television producer? I just walk up to her as she's about to leave my office, as she has stood up ready to go and grab one of her breasts. I mean... <laughs> No one is that. No one is that gauche and unsophisticated. I mean, that that would be a kind of like you know, a thirteen-year-old male virgin and probably one on the autistic spectrum's idea of a pass. Um, uh, so it's not a pass exactly. What is it? Is it an assertion of dominance? But why would you take such a kind of extraordinary risk? Why would you put your hand on a visitor to Downing Street's breast if you were a Downing Street official? Um, it, it just, it just sort of. It, it, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not quite. I just can't understand the psychology of it. Supposing it really happened, what was his motive? What, what was it about? Was he just trying to sexually humiliate her? And if so, why? Why was he? I suppose you know some men do get a thrill from that, um, but um, in that context, it just seems so kind of inappropriate in that particular place, in front of the portrait of Margaret Thatcher. Um, yeah. So I'm not saying for all of those reasons. It can't have possibly happened. I'm totally neutral on that. Um, but I just don't get, I can't get my head around the psychology of it if it actually did happen. I think, um, I think it sounds kind of like it, 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 quite specific. So it kind of, that makes it sound quite plausible. The, the, the bond aspect, the bond girl aspect. Mm. And, um, you know, that my sunglasses made me look like a bond girl. I, I don't know. When I read it, to me, it seems the fact that he then laughs nervously. He doesn't sort of say, "Oh, come on," you know what I mean? Like to me, so that's what that's what. If you would take her at face value, it makes it sound like it is just a very clumsy a guy. Doesn't who just thinks that's a way to come on to someone and then goes, "Oh, whoops, I got it wrong." But you're saying that's implausible because he he'd be too old to to behave like that and too sophisticated. You would assume. Yeah, and, and I suppose that the the, the the other question about this story um, is, uh, well, why has Daisy Goodwin? Um, left it um 10 years uh before naming him so she she did she did she did um give an interview to the radio times i think in 2017 uh, at the height of the me too brouhaha um in which she said she had been um molested by someone in downing street uh, during the cameron ministry um uh, and she did but she didn't name him um 6 years ago and now she's decided to name him and she says in her piece in the Times a couple of days ago where she broke this story. She's naming him now because he's one of three candidates running to be the Tory mayoral candidate in the upcoming mayoral election. Um, and you sort of think, well, but what was what was the reason for not naming him in 2017? And she does sort of, or, or not kind of, you know, not ma making a complaint 
at the time and naming him in the complaint. She does sort of talk about that in the article, to be fair. She said that, you know, she, she didn't find it particularly traumatic or upsetting. She turned it into an anecdote. Um, but then she felt guilty um, about not not making more of it at the time during the Me Too imbroglio because she felt she um, uh, hadn't done enough to protect, um, you know, people of her daughter's generation from being molested in the workplace. And it was actually the right thing to do was to call out name and shame. But she didn't name and shame when she when she did, in fact, talk about it in 2017. She still kept him anonymous. She's only naming him now. Um, and it, it does feel a bit like, actually, as she says it in the piece, you know, I'm not I'm not publishing his name out of revenge, but, you know, uh, because I think people like him uh, shouldn't be in public life and he needs to be held to account to protect future generations and to wipe out, eradicate this kind of behavior. Um, but um, uh, it, it does feel a bit like, in spite of her denials, that this is an example of revenge being a dish best served cold. You know, I mean, had she named him at the time, he probably wouldn't be able to run uh, for the, you know, for the, the Tory candidacy and the mayoral race now. But, you know, she hasn't named him, lulled him into a false sense of security, thinks he's got away with it, assuming it happened. Um, and uh, and and now, you know, just at his point of greatest vulnerability, when he's probably the favourite to become the Tory mayoral candidate, not that he'll beat, you know, Sadiq Khan, but at least it would have been something. Then she strikes. And I'm sure this will, this will take him out of the race. And that's the most unfortunate thing that it just leads to us still getting Sadiq Khan, because that's, that's, a, that's an interesting philosophical question. Is Sadiq Khan being mayor of London still worse than someone groping someone's breast? I mean, you know, his, his, his tenure leads to sort of knife crime and London generally falling apart and collapsing. How many lives does that destroy? So it's an interesting philosophical question. Well, but I think, it, a- it, yeah, it would be an interesting philosophical question. But I think in this case, um, even if he won the primary and became the Conservative mayoral candidate, um, I don't think he could beat Sadiq Khan. So I don't think this has actually made any material difference. Sadiq Khan, I think, is is just going to win whoever the other candidate is. Yeah, I still maintain if they put up a better candidate. I mean, Sean Bailey did better than everyone thought. But yeah, let me just add one thing. She says here, while I am not suggesting he is in the same league as the man who raped and murdered Sarah Everard, that's nice, isn't it? <laughs> She's given that concession. I mean... <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out there, Daisy. It makes me queasy to think that the man who clearly got a thrill out of groping me under a portrait of Mrs. Thatcher should be someone who can be relied on to make judgment calls about how to protect the opposite sex. Yeah, I mean, one thing listeners might be screaming at me is, how come you believe Top G, Nick, and you don't believe Korsky? So maybe I'll address that hypothetical. I'm not saying... Well, I I, I believe takes I've followed him for years and I've met him and I've just followed him for so long that I... And I, I just believe it's a stitch up because of his position, because of things he said and the threat he represents and he's a loud character and so on. And just in the way that I don't believe the Conor McGregor one. This one, I take each one on merit. This one does seem more plausible, but I'm not saying we should believe it. Like you say, innocent until proven guilty. It seems a bit more plausible. Maybe I should just stick with my policy, believe all men, because, you know, that we've had believe all women. So maybe I should just back Korsky just on, on that principle. Yeah. But. And I think, yeah, I think, I think um, to add to that, I think Daisy Goodwin is a more credible witness for the prosecution than any of the people, as far as I know, that have emerged as witnesses for the prosecution in the Tate case. I mean, she's she's quite a credible accuser, I think. Yeah, and she and the detail is quite clear, so he can easily. I mean, has he come forward yet and said anything about 
No, it wasn't actually a portrait of that. He has it. He has admitted Churchill or something. (laughs) No, well, he's we should say actually he has categorically denied it. Um, You know, he's he's been about as emphatic as he can be uh, that this never happened. He has he has um, said that he has met with he did meet with her at that time. He said a couple of times. not clear whether they were both at Downing Street. Um, um, so he's acknowledged that a meeting at around that time in Downing Street took place. Uh, but beyond that, he is categorically denied that 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 he groped her. Hmm. Could you have done it? Could you touch brush it against someone by accident? Maybe that's why he Could was he embarrassed. Watched, yeah. Um, it sort of yeah. It doesn't feel. Like, she she uh, she 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 sort of says that she's um, you know. She's she's run it through her memory dozens of times, trying to think of any conceivable innocent explanation and just can't come up with one in her piece of the times. Okay. Well, I just read this story just immediately before the show, so I haven't reflected on it a lot. So hopefully my take isn't too stupid. But yeah, I mean, we don't know, basically, and that's the story. But one thing we do know is that Top G is innocent. So what, 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 one, one final yeah. thing on this, Nick. Um, it's impossible, I think, to entirely dismiss the suspicion that... Um, that that one of the rival candidates in the primary to get the Tory nomination is behind this story in some way. They either encouraged someone at the Times to contact Daisy because they knew she had this story, or they knew someone in Daisy's circle, or they knew Daisy. Um, but uh, you all, you all, you. The finger of suspicion always has to point at a political rival when a big story like this breaks in the Times, which effectively torpedoes your rival's, you know, political campaign. Yeah, it could be a rival, could be Khan, the great evil of Sadiq Khan. But, but also, the problem with that though, Toby, is the fact that she she had flagged this story years ago, but just not saying who it was. How would they that that make that's how they they could say come up with a story about this guy. But the fact that she'd already flagged someone did something, how could how, doesn't that make it give it more credence? You see what I mean? Because well, yeah, no, but, but yeah, but I think I think I think you know within political circles, this story's been widely known about um, for ten years. With him named when they tell the story to one another at cocktail parties during lockdown. Right. Um, I see. But um, uh, so so you know so one of the rival candidates could could have known about this story and could have uh, encouraged a journalist or indeed Daisy to publish it now when it does Daniel right. Kulski maximum harm. Yeah, because if they only knew it was an incident, then they'd, they'd have to be saying, you know that incident you had a while ago, can you just say that was Kulski? And then she could say it was him, and then she could take it back at another time and go, actually, it was someone else. She could keep like changing the person depending yeah. on the, you know what I mean? Probably get away with that about two or three times. Uh, but okay. Yeah, that's very possible. It's a very, it's a, it's a twisted world. So who knows? I mean, I've seen the comedy industry is bad enough, so who knows what people will do to win the, the, the mayor position. It is funny, though, how they, on a wider point, how they can't put up anyone really good. You know what I mean? Labour, of course, wants Sadiq Khan, so they're not going to put anyone up. And then the Tories just have to keep putting up these candidates. who they, they, try, they keep putting up candidates to try and appeal to London, like, hey, this guy's like a hip candidate who appeals to the kids. It's like, but then the guy who actually won it was Boris Johnson, the sort of, you know what I mean? I mean maybe I've said this before, but the most Etonian, least kind of, Londony hit person possible, but to me it seems the Tories are going wrong. Not really with Korsky, but some of their candidates are kind of like, "Hey, let's appeal to the youth." Like I'm into grime or something. It's like, no, just get just get the best candidate. But why do they keep? Who do you think? Let's suppose a celeb, 
you know, could be persuaded to run, someone of Boris's stature could be persuaded to run as a Tory, who would be the most likely to win, you think? You think Clarkson could win? Clarkson um, would absolutely storm it. I and mean, I, I know he's more of a country yeah. guy nowadays and he's all into tractors, but he would absolutely crush because he people still love Clarkson mount, yeah. despite what the media he, tells you. Yeah, and he could mount a very effective campaign against the Ulez expansion scheme. And oh, he'd love that. 50, Just yeah. driving down like in a tank or something, or he's driving like a tractor down the, like central London or something like that. It definitely could happen. <laughs> or, or comes comes into London with a flock of sheep. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and says he refuses to pay the carbon emissions bill. You know, oh, yeah. There's a lot of scope for very amusing stunts. Turn it into an Amazon documentary series. Yeah, he should do it. Yeah, it's almost no. It's almost not worth thinking of another candidate. Such is such a good choice. Um, I'm just trying to think of anyone else. I half think I could do it, Toby. Or you? I think you'd be a decent candidate for it. Yeah, I well, was you're a bit sorry by... for London, aren't you? But I, I, I'll give you a scoop here, Nick. I was okay. asked by a very senior conservative um, uh, if if I would consider throwing my hat into the ring um, this time for... around. Yeah, this time around. Yeah. Wow. Why didn't ago. you? Um. I just, because I, I, you know, I, I, I saw what happened to Lawrence Fox um, uh, <laughs> three years ago, and I just kind of had this horrible vision of, of, of being beaten by some kind of upstart YouTuber, and thought, oh no, no, I can't face it. Um, uh, it could just be really humiliating. Oh really? I thought I think you have more connections than Lawrence in the sort of relevant connections and. You know, I think you, you could actually, I think you'd do better than Lawrence personally. No offense to Lawrence. I just think you're, you know, so many people in that kind of world. I think you're a better place to do it. You've been going along much longer in this kind of industry or realm. He's an actor. Yeah, I think, I think that, um, I also, all the things that were dredged up to prove that I was an unsuitable person to serve as a non executive director on the board of the Office for Students at the beginning of 2018, my um, uh, nuclear cancellation in which I lost five positions dwarfed your cancellation, Nick. Um, I fear that that would all be brought up again and the prospect of putting my family through all that, the journalists on the doorstep, um, people sifting through everything I've said or written, tweeted. People would sift through this podcast. I mean, there's been, I've generated a bit of unsuitable material since 2018 yes. in the last five years so, and there might be there, there could be collateral damage you might it, they might bring up the fact that the guy i do a weekly podcast with and apparently have a warm and friendly relationship with is andrew tate's chief apologist in the uk um <laughs> I'm followed sure by would, both tates on twitter yeah 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 you're right man that that could be a big problem for you but more just some of the stuff you said on the podcast. It's even shocked me at times. I know. Some yeah. of the stuff. They could just put a montage of that. I thought we'd, I thought we'd cut that all out anyway. Yeah. <laughs> we cut some of it. Jason can't get it all. There would be nothing left. But um, that, yeah, that's a good point, Toby. I mean, is that like the real reason you moved into the shed, that the journalists were on your doorstep and you have to retreat to the shed like, and then like, your wife would like distract them at the doorstep and then you're in the shed hiding out? Is that how it happened? I did, I did once have to... I did once... Um, uh, managed to kind of get past the gauntlet, kind of disguised as a kind of delivery man, and they weren't quite sure whether I'd. And I managed to just about get away without them spotting the fact that it was me. And they, a few of them ran after me, but I, I was away on my bike before they. That must have been tweaked. awful. And you think they'd <laughs> treat a journalist? You wouldn't. You wouldn't think they'd treat a journalist because I know they're evil. But yeah. one yeah, might they, imagine in a in a pure yeah. world that they would treat a journalist a bit differently. No loyalty amongst uh, reptiles, I'm afraid, Nick. No, it's, it was like a it was like a scene from Scoop. <laughs> How so, long were yeah. they there for? 
they were only there for a few days. And, and one of them was a Guardian journalist. And I did, I did um, on a couple of occasions, um, my wife asked them if they'd like a cup of tea and took trays of tea out. And I was urging her to ask the Guardian journalist if um, he wanted soy milk in his, but she wouldn't, she wasn't, didn't want to troll him. Um, but uh, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, it was really, it was, it was tough on my children. My daughter in particular didn't want to go to school because she found it so embarrassing to have to, you know, run fourteen-year-old girl run the gauntlet of these kind of uh, beery, masculine journalists who are kind of screaming things at anyone coming into or leaving my house. So it was that, that is horrible. Uh, it was horrible. Well, I feel for your daughter. That is terrible. And um, and you know, my friend Sean went through this for a few weeks when he kissed a dancer on the show. As I always say, where everyone kisses the dancer. And many of them even leave their partners and get married, like Rachel Riley. But they all get away with it because they're women or in the club or something. I don't know. But yeah, they followed him everywhere for, for weeks. Front page tabloids. It's everything you do. So that's, that's an interesting question, isn't it? It's like your level of fame is like how many days they stay on the doorstep. You said a few days. And there's a higher yeah. level where it's a couple of weeks. Then there's a higher level where they literally never leave. If you're like Prince Harry or yeah. someone, to be fair to Harry, they just never leave. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, 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 that reminds me of, um, I once went to a a friend of mine's quote unquote society wedding and I was one of the, um, groomsmen and, um, and he was marrying this rich, this, this, this kind of, um, heiress with a, with a famous second name. Um, and he, he, he said, uh, and he was kept on saying how anxious he was about paparazzis, you know, um, invading the wedding and how difficult it was to secure the perimeter and how they couldn't do anything to um, protect themselves from paps in helicopters. On and on he was going about it. And uh, and, and, um, and and during the usher's breakfast, um, uh, I got up and I said, Hughes asked me to make a short speech about the paparazzi problem because I'm a journalist. Um, so the problem is there aren't any. I've got some cameras outside. I'm looking for some volunteers. <laughs> and he didn't think it was at all funny. He was really cross about it. <laughs> and in fact, not funny. a single paparazzi turned up to the wedding. <laughs> well, Toby, as a professional comedian of many, many years, I can confirm that is funny. That okay. was a funny joke. He was wrong. You were right. Um, you may lack a little bit of social, social nuance. I mean, nearly all your stories, Toby, involve you not grasping some social nicety and they didn't get it and you're like and i thought it was funny but they hated it have you noticed that that's like nearly all your story that's That's true yeah something i'm a little bit worried about getting involved with you too much but um (laughs) all right well that's the korski story with a nice digression there a little exclusive about toby's mayoral candidacy or potential candidacy i think he should still go for it personally but do you want to quickly do this story about our friend lewis schaefer so i thought we'd quickly throw this one in for lewis just for some fun so he's my colleague of course and friend on um, headliners, we'll say friend. He's uh, on, on GB News. And he, Lewis managed to accrue 151 Ofcom complaints last time I checked because he basically said that COVID didn't exist as a, as a, as a virus or whatever. And it was pretty funny. I, I actually can't remember the exact clip, but he said something like that. He's always saying stuff like this. And this managed to get people up in arms complaining to Ofcom. And I just think it's so wild when you're complaining about Lewis Schaefer. I just think you've jumped every possible shark. But that's how I see it, because I know what Lewis is like. So I'll give you an example. I mean, Matthew Sweet weighed in, and of course, Otto English, this Twitter legend. He said, GB News, Lewis Schaefer suggesting that COVID didn't exist and that government aides knew it. Very, very dangerous territory. And I just, knowing Lewis, I just have to laugh at that. The idea that Lewis is dangerous to anyone is so absurd. I mean, maybe if you're a vegan and he's in a bad mood. But 
Ivo, because he only eats meat and he eats like raw meat and often posts his breakfast and it's just like bloody raw meat. It's absolutely disgusting. Anyway, so I just wrote, what is the world coming to when people take Lewis seriously? His life is a multi-decade comedic performance. He doesn't believe in blood pressure. He thinks water dehydrates you. Water. This is like launching a campaign against an eccentric homeless person. Same shoes too, because Lewis always wears these awful beat-up trainers, <laughs> even with a suit for some reason. And then Otto replies to me, fairly amazing this, a GB News presenter basically saying that another GB News presenter shouldn't be taken seriously because he talks nonsense. So I replied, fairly amazing this, a Twitter user pretending not to know what a comedian is or that a show featuring exclusively comedians should not always be taken seriously. So who's right, Toby? I mean, you know, Lewis Schaefer's an upset. So my argument with Lewis, particularly, look, headlines of the show, you have to be a comedian to get on it with like very few exceptions. You've been on it a couple of times. uh, Kelvin McKenzie was on it. Very rare exceptions. You're meant to be a comedian, and you have to have some credentials. And Lewis has been a comedian. He's about, I think he's about 66 or something. He's much older than you think. He's been doing this a long time. He's a kind of almost anti-comedian, kind of upset. His whole life as a comedian performance, he's never really off. And his whole joke is that he's Lewis Schaefer. It's not like me where it's like, I'm serious about the story. Now here's a bit of wit. With Lewis, it's just all comedy. He just lives it and breathes it every day. So that's why I called it a multi-decade. It's like a living art, really. And I, I claim they're actually a bit philistine for not understanding that Lewis is kind of a just a comedic figure. So then I introduced him anyway the, ne- the next night on Headline, as I said, um, great to be here with uh, Dr. Lewis Schaefer, esteemed epidemiologist. You should take everything he says 100% seriously. Thank you, doctor, for being here. And, I kind of, and now he's changed his Twitter thing to Dr. Lewis Schaefer. And, and that night he managed to say that gravity wasn't real or was overrated or something. So like this is the guy you're dealing with. Like doesn't believe in blood pressure, water, Gravity, vegetables, exercise. I could brushing his teeth. He's against. I could go on and on. It's it, it, the list of things that Lewis thinks are sort of scams. It's basically endless. So of course he doesn't think COVID is real. But this is the person that you're seriously objecting to. The whole thing struck me as absolutely absurd. But then again, Toby, it is a news show. We do cover news. Am I wrong? What do you think? Yeah, um, I, I think it's interesting, isn't it? It's uh, that Otto English, who is a kind of woke warrior um slash investigative reporter and who is one of the chief contributors to byline times which is basically uh the left-wing version of Infowars. so it's a it's a left-wing conspiracy website um that just churns out these unbelievably complicated and completely implausible conspiracy theories um uh, I, I, uh, I, 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 there was once an article about me in it, and I looked up the, I googled the, 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 the person who'd written it, and he was a nine eleven truther amongst other things. Um, so, um, Which Lewis uh, but, is, but, 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 <laughs> but, um, and James Denningpole, um, but, um, it used to be a left wing conspiracy theory. Now it's become uh, less politically specific, um, but um, it sort of in, it, it provides an insight, doesn't it, into the minds of these um kind of wokesters we always claim they don't have a sense of humor but it must be true in otto english's case and if you if you if you really don't have a sense of humor you know if you can't tell when someone's joking and when they're intending to be taken seriously then presumably he can't tell the difference between you know um uh michelle dubry's program and headliners he can't tell the difference between 
Dan Wooden's program and headliners. You know, um, for him, you're just all news presenters, and there's no kind of there's no variance, there's no nuance, there's no um, the, he can't kind of he doesn't know when to kind of um, turn up the irony button or, or, or yeah, he's just it, it all he, everything is at the same register for him because you know he's just this tone deaf kind of political zealot. Um, so in a way, not surprising that he thinks that. Lewis should be investig- by, investigated by Ofcom for misleading the public. Or, or is it like I say, Toby, he's pretending not to know and he's disingenuous. You think he actually has no sense of humour? Yeah, it's, it's always difficult to um, answer that question. But um, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and assume that he really can't tell. <laughs> so we're going to give him the benefit of the fact that he's just thick and has no sense of humour versus disingenuous and mendacious. That, that's pretty nice, actually. Nice of us, actually. He just doesn't have a sense of humour. <laughs> I actually disagree, though, because I've been told that Otto English is actually okay. Obviously, it's not his real name, but he's okay in private. And he does all this just because he knows his fans like it as a sort of pure grift. Now, someone has told me that who I'm friends with, and I... As hard to believe as it is, he assures me he's all right in private, which I find incredibly hard to believe. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, is that you now trying to be charitable? It is, yeah. Is that your ch- charitable interpretation of what's happening? He's just a he's just an absolutely shameless grifter. He, he doesn't actually believe it. <laughs> um, you know, give him some credit, Toby. <laughs> yeah, that's the best we know, can do. It, so it's that's not the good either way, is it? <laughs> right. Shameless, disingenuous grift or genuine lack of humor, sense of humor and like an autism, basically. But okay. Well, you know, and not autism in the, in the sense of the many autists we like, like Elon Musk, but in a bad sense that I'm just making up now. Not, not the real sense he actually has it, but a kind of completely little-mindedness. Yeah, could be, could be that, Toby. I should, full, full disclosure, I am a bit of a 9-11 truther myself. And a little, little caveat on something else you said. Uh, the info was conspiracy theories quite often come true, whereas the byline time ones never do. So a bit of a difference there. And uh, did you want to add this Rye College thing? Because one of the things Otto doubled down on was the idea that the, and we forgot to cover this last week, my mistake, because it was on my list, was that the um, the Rye College thing, famously the, the girl who identifies as a cat, and then these two 13, or I've heard 14, depending on, on the article, girls told the teacher we're not going along with all this nonsense, blah, blah, blah. Someone could identify as a cow. They also said we wouldn't go for it. It's a mental problem. And she said, you know, you're basically you're bigoted. You should go to another school. Your parents, it's very sad that your parents think that. You should educate yourself, blah, blah, blah. There's a famous clip, viral clip. But uh, one of the things was that like, the cat thing wasn't true. And my position was always the cat thing was a red herring. The real takeaway was teachers around the land are imposing gender ideology on students and basically saying they're wrong and evil if they don't go along with it. And that's disgusting. Whereas the cat thing became this red herring of like, there wasn't a cat. There wasn't someone that identified as cat. No, there was. And Otto was one of the people doubling down on that. Yeah. So Otto's story is that um, all these um, right-wing culture warriors masquerading as journalists working for these fascist publications like the Daily Telegraph um, uh, thought this story was too good to check because it so helped to advance their fash agenda. Um, uh, and he, being a much more responsible and scrupulous journalist, even though he works for the left-wing Infowars, um, decided to check this and supposedly posted something on Twitter about it. Someone who claimed to have been in the classroom when the exchange happened uh, told him categorically that there was no, there is no child in the school who self-identifies as a cat. 
Um, and he then claimed that this, uh, because these right-wing culture warriors had kind of signal boosted this uh, story, this misinformation. Um, uh, it, it had created a moral panic, um, and uh, but it was all based on sand, all based on misinformation. Um, it, was, it was a false reading of what had happened. There is no cat girl. Um, uh, but um, against that, I can offer several pieces of evidence. First of all, while lots of other teachers, children, parents have subsequently come forward in the wake of this story to say, yes, there are children at our school or our daughter's school that identifies as a mushroom or as um, a hologram um, or as a dinosaur um, or as a horse. One girl apparently identifies as a horse, has to be taken out to be exercised by a teacher. And it seems to be actually not a moral panic, but a genuine phenomenon that there are children, maybe there aren't that many of them, but there are children in schools in this country um, who um, uh, identify as celestial objects, as inanimate objects, as animals. Um, and it does seem to be an indictment of the um, school policy, which is now almost ubiquitous, of affirming the self-diagnosis of trans-identifying children um, and not in any way trying to challenge them or trying to gently coax them back to reality. So just as they cannot do that now, it's against school's policy to in any way challenge the self-diagnosis of a trans-identifying child. If a child identifies as a cat, you have to affirm that too. If a child identifies as a mushroom, you have to affirm that too. They have no choice if they're going to be consistent. Once you once you allow that it's possible for children to part company with reality and that any challenge to their self-understanding is an affront and is a breach of the school's inclusion policy, then inevitably you end up where we've ended up. So, of course, the left, people like Otto English don't like it, but it does seem to be a real thing and not something invented by right-wing culture warriors. And I can also present another even more persuasive piece of evidence, which is that the Free Speech Union is currently representing the mother of one of the two 13-year-old girls at the center of this story. And she has confirmed that one of the children in the school does indeed self-identify as a cat. So effectively, Otto English was just gaslighting everyone. Um, his source is probably someone who's just stringing him along on Twitter, um, wasn't actually present in the classroom, isn't a student or a teacher or a parent of a student at the school, doesn't know anything about the story, is just confirming Otto English's priors. There is, in fact, a girl at the school who identifies as a cat. Stop gaslighting us, Otto. Yeah, stop catlighting us. And and uh, Catherine Burblesing said, obviously the founder of the Michaela Community School, said that she was aware of a child of one school who identified as a gay male hologram. I know you said hologram, but for some reason it says here, Sorry, I didn't... gay male hologram Yeah, in the Times. Yeah, that, Quite strange that, uh, detail. Yeah. <laughs> what, one, 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 one theory... Um, I, I was quite I found I was quite attracted to initially when I started hearing about all these kids identifying as things like gay male holograms was that actually they're just trolling the teachers. Mm. They're basically little budding Titania McGraths who've who've come up with this brilliant weeds. Yeah, they can basically do whatever they like. I mean, this girl who identifies there was another story, I think, about a girl who identifies as a cat in another school, not Rye College. Um, and uh, uh, she she's allowed to meow her answers in lessons. So when a teacher asks a question and points to her, she just meows. So, you know, that would actually be a, a kind of really 
effective piece of satire, a way of taking the piss out of these teachers who insist on, you know, respecting um, the kids in the school who self-identify as members of the opposite sex. Um, but um, alas, I don't think they are budding Titania McGraths, at least not for the most part. They do seem to be, they just seem to have gone genuinely mad. My question is, how does it work being a gay male hologram? I mean, if you're a hologram, and does it even matter if you're gay? Because you can't really make contact with anything, can you? So can, can you even have a, a gay relationship as a hologram? Because how does it physically work? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because you're translucent. You, you, can't, you couldn't have sex. You couldn't but even really be, kiss yeah, or but, anything. But I suppose you, you, you could be kind of, you could, you could be attracted to other, other men. Other gay male or, holograms. Or, or, or members of the same sex as your biological sex, even though you identify, but you identify as a male hologram that's attracted to other men, not just holograms. So I think you can be, so you can be a sort of, uh, you can be sort of gay, but at the same time, asexual, can't you? I mean, I'm not, I'm not kind of conversant enough in queer theory, but I would imagine that that's not a deal breaker if, 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 (laughs) uh, from their point of view, from the queer theorist's point of view. Interesting. Um, yeah, I need to know more about this this gay male hologram thing because I just it's just placed there as if it's as if it's self-explanatory in the paper, and I'm going. There's so much more there. I mean, have I read that? I think of a Rimmer from from a Red Dwarf. Remember, he was a hologram because he'd actually died and he had the H on his head at all times. Chris Barry right. and Chris Barry's actually yeah. turned out to be kind of on our side. He's kind of like a a sort of a awake isn't he maybe not your side he's kind of team james almost chris barry I, but, but what, what about this nick i mean most robot characters in popular culture whether it's you know c cp3o c3po or c3po um or 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 the R2-T-T. robot in lost in space uh, they're all basically male and gay aren't they that's interesting rt wasn't gay was he rt no no c3po was I'm sorry, sir. Yeah, he was like a gay butler. Gay butler, yeah. Yeah, but then, but then, Artie what about, was what, kind what, of date, date, data in Star Trek: Next Generation. Oh yeah, he seemed he's a bit, bit, bit camp. Gay. Yeah, a bit yeah. gay, didn't he? Yeah, you're right. He he did seem a bit gay. That's a good point. Whereas R two D two, to be very fair, he seemed just based. He seemed like a kind of troll, didn't he? Like he was always sort of trolling and joking. Like he seemed pretty cool and funny. And mm. not that gay people can't be cool and funny. Let's be very clear. But he seemed straight. He seemed like a cool, <laughs> funny, straight droid. <laughs> Didn't you get that vibe from R2? But he was, always just it was, it was like a kind of, yeah, he was like, like, like an intelligent dog. Right. Yeah, pet dog. Yeah. Um, more intelligent whereas, than that, maybe. Yeah. Maybe he's like a kid, actually, more than a, like a, a maybe, maybe a t- maybe. mischievous teenager. But you're right. He was like, and it was always like, oh, R2. Yeah, it was always, he was always causing, yeah, it's interesting. Why are these, maybe people can write in and explain this, but um, I need to know more but, about I mean, how. My, my, point, my point is that, yeah. you know, it wouldn't have been a stumbling block when understanding that C3PO, what is it? C3PO. Is that right? C- yeah, because they call him 3PO. Uh, so it wasn't, an, it wasn't a stumbling block when you knew, well, how can a robot be gay? Because he's not having sex with anyone. He presumably doesn't have a penis. But you did, that didn't stop you from oh, basically yeah. grasping that he was gay. Right. So I think you can be essentially gay without ever... You don't act on it. Even being able to have sex with a man. <laughs> ah, yeah, right. So you're just yes, you're a nominally gay hologram who can never do anything because, right? But you just are gay. Interesting. Maybe that, okay, that's it. Maybe that's my like me. I am straight, but obviously I don't have anything to do with women because they're completely evil. Maybe that's the same. <laughs> um, <laughs> thought I'd throw that one in. All right, 
Well, maybe. Oh, should we do an advert first? Uh, who do you yes. want to go first? I don't mind going first. Are you worried about parents or a loved one who are finding it more and more difficult to take care of themselves or who may be living with a condition such as dementia or Parkinson's? Are you starting to think about a residential care home, but the very thought of it doesn't sit right? At the Live-In Care Company, we truly believe that home is the best place to receive care from an expert carer of your choice and on a one-to-one basis. Home is always a calmer, more healthy and a happier place to be. For more information about Live-In Care, please go to the Live-In Care Company, that's all one word, theliveincarecompany.co.uk or you can ring us for a no-obligation conversation on 0118 914-5300. That's 0118-914-5300. We'll be happy to help. All right. Thank you to the Living Care Company. And now let's go over to Will with our top stories of the week. All right. Well, I'm here with Dr. Will Jones, editor of The Daily Skeptic. And as always, we have some fascinating stories from the website. And I thought we'd start with this one. CDC's Walensky New vaccines didn't stop infections in January 2021, but still told Americans vaccinated people do not carry the virus, email reveals. That's shocking, Will. Yeah, this is a shocking revelation, a scandal from the US. Uh, CDC's director, Rochelle Walensky, uh, the new Freedom of Information uh, emails have come out showing that she and Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci himself knew very well uh, way back in January 2021, if you remember, that's the second month of the rollout, really, really early on in the vaccine rollout. They already knew about so-called breakthrough infections. They already knew that, that, that the virus was getting through the vaccines, that the vaccines were not stopping infections dead, as they uh, would later claim and that um, and so they were fully aware of this and yet they continued to tell Americans that the uh, that the vaccine stopped the the virus dead that you were a dead end for the virus they said this uh, both uh, Walensky and Fauci uh, and others of course in the administration the Biden administration making these uh, statements uh, all the time and not just these statements uh, but policies based on it remember that uh, the US didn't end its federal vaccine mandates uh, for many employees until this year um, until April and only lifted the the ban, the complete ban on unvaccinated visitors entering the United States uh, last month on May the 12th. So these policies based on the ludicrous claim, uh, ludicrous idea that the that the vaccines stop the virus and stop it spreading uh, have been have been enforced for years and only recently came to an end. And yet here we have uh, evidence, proof that the key people in the administration were fully aware that the vaccines did no such thing as stopping infections way back right at the start. Shocking, but will there anything come of it? Will will any heads roll? Will there be uh, any recompense? Uh, you've got to doubt it, haven't you? That's the thing. Nothing even happens. I talked to Toby about this. It's like with the uh, with the endless parties and the party gate and all this. It's like it should weaken the case for further lockdowns in future. But you just know it won't. They'll just say no. It should have been earlier and harder. And it's just that we didn't all keep to the rules, but we should have. And it, this 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 sort of stuff doesn't make a dent. I mean, it's great work, but it doesn't seem to do anything, does it? Not, not with the people who matter, um, if you if you know what I mean. It makes a dent. It makes a dent with a, a, a decent section of the public. I think it helps to it helps to wear away the the support for these things and increase the number of skeptics. Uh, but no, in the in the 
in the the, pe- the places of power and the decision makers, and especially those who were involved at the time or implicated. Uh, no, it doesn't seem to make a dent. And of course, we had Hancock, Matt Hancock, at the at the COVID inquiry today, uh, yet again repeating the claim that the problem with the UK's response and pandemic plans was that uh, we were not ready to lock down hard enough, fast enough. Uh, and uh, and strictly enough so um yeah so they just it's just not the all the evidence that's accumulated of that these things uh don't work vaccines or lockdowns or masks uh it's just it's been accumulating for years i mean it was already there beforehand but it's certainly accumulated in the last uh three years but just just in places where you might say it matters uh it just doesn't seem to be get making uh making the impact that it needs to yeah, and something else that doesn't seem to make the impact is the existence of Sweden, which is there as a constant kind of reminder of how it can be. And we've got this story here. Sweden wins with lowest pandemic mortality in Europe, BBC analysis shows. Yeah, so we've seen that Sweden wins uh, in several uh, on, on uh, pandemic mortality on in several occasions. But the significance of this story this week, there's a new BBC analysis, uh, not exactly a hotbed of lockdown scepticism. And, uh, and this BBC analysis shows that the overall pandemic death rates, that's from all-cause mortality, in Sweden was the lowest in Europe, uh, beaten only by New Zealand uh, in, their, in their analysis in the wider, in the wider world. Uh, yeah, really um, low, uh, b- below average mortality during the pandemic from March 2020 to February uh, this year. So, so lower than what you would expect uh, de- number of deaths. Uh, in Sweden during the the, 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 the so-called pandemic uh, three years uh, than um, yeah low, lower than you would expect despite being a supposed pandemic uh, and of course Sweden being famous for for refusing uh, lockdown mandates and lockdowns refusing to close schools most schools uh, refusing mask mandates uh, really I mean they did they did bring in some restrictions I mean we mustn't pretend that Sweden didn't bring in anything but some of the most stringent and and ridiculous policies uh, that we've seen um, they didn't bring didn't bring in any of them so uh, so a major result for Sweden uh, really good news obviously for Sweden but also really good news uh, for skeptics and the world because it shows that uh, that these lockdowns are really we don't we don't need to and it doesn't help um, and probably makes things worse imposing all these extreme measures uh, onto onto society uh, so yeah so really um, uh, really good news there yeah I love the existence of Sweden as a constant rebuke to the lockdown zealots people have tried to tell me I may have said this before that people on Twitter woke people and so on have tried to tell me no no they had a kind of voluntary lockdown and of course it's nonsense about 10% wore masks I believe they didn't have a voluntary lockdown and famously our friend the top G Andrew Tate went there at the height of COVID to prove that oh Sweden's totally open it was basically open yeah, it, it would. There was a lot of complaints in the spring that people were still, that young people were still going to, uh, going to clubs and to cafes and to restaurants. There were, you could see the photos. They went round um, in March and April. They're still online if you want to see them. Of uh, of people uh, still packing out the the cafes and restaurants in Stockholm. Uh, so, I mean, there was there was a reduction, especially in working in the offices. Uh, there, there was some reduction in in there was some increase in working from home for those who could, uh, but really uh, not not compared, very small compared to elsewhere. Uh, so there was there wasn't a volunt- so called voluntary lockdown. No, absolutely not. Absolutely. Let's um, look at this other one, which is this is interesting because one claim, even among skeptics, sometimes is, or you know, skeptics disagree, but some skeptics will be like, well, okay, you did need them for the vaccines for elderly people and so on. But this headline is, if you thought COVID vaccines were effective against serious disease and death, think again. What about this one, Will? 
This is the latest from Dr. Eyal Shahar. I think I've got, as I pronounced that correctly, we've carried a number of his uh, his analyses on the vaccines on the on the website. This is his latest, and he looks at a study um, in Israel of uh, long-term residents of care facilities that supposedly uh, showed 85% v- uh, vaccine effectiveness against COVID death, and they're the kind of numbers that we're that we've we've heard. And I admit that I have I have tended to assume um, and have written in the past that COVID vaccines seem to be effective against serious disease and against death, based on studies and uh, results uh, like those. But but what uh, Dr. Shahad does is he looks at it more closely and he says, well, actually, if you look at these studies, and there's quite a number of them now, particularly they look at all-cause mortality, so not just COVID, uh, but deaths from all causes in the elderly. And if you if you look at them, then actually they, they come up with implausible, totally unrealistic uh, results for people, for, for the vaccines saving people, preventing non- COVID deaths, deaths from all causes. You can see that they basically, it looks from these studies, this one, the, yeah, this one in Sweden, um, and also data from the US and UK, and they, and they all seem to show that the vaccines cut all-cause mortality by around about 50%. So basically, it looks like the vaccines pre- make, make you half as likely to die from anything you know, the basically vaccinated people are, are half as likely to die as as unvaccinated people, according to these studies. Or you put it another way, the unvaccinated people are twice as likely to die um, of all causes uh, than vaccinated people. And he points out that this is, apart from anything else, you wouldn't expect this. Uh, flu vaccines, we know, are a maximum 50% um, effective against flu. But you certainly would not expect, obviously, you would not expect a vaccine to halve your risk of dying from, from anything else, you know, uh, heart attacks, uh, car accidents, all these kinds of things. So, so he, so what he points out, and this is that this is an, this is proof or evidence of the so-called healthy vaccine bias, healthy vaccine effect, basically, where vaccinated people tend, on average, this is on average, uh, to be healthier, to be significantly healthier than unvaccinated people. I don't mean the vaccine makes them um, healthier. I mean that the that they are the kind of the kind of people who get vaccinated tend to be healthier on average than the kind of people who don't get vaccinated. Now you might say, oh well, I'm unvaccinated, I'm really healthy. Well, uh, fair enough. Uh, but this is this is on average. This is over the whole population. We're not just talking about individuals here. And so his point is that g- given that, so if you look at the un the un the not sorry the non COVID deaths. Um, and, the, and the fact that it halves the death rate or appears to halve the death rate in those, then what that actually is telling you is that the background death rate of unvaccinated people is about twice as high as the death rate in vaccinated people. And therefore, you actually that tells you that you need to halve any any supposed effect on COVID deaths, any supposed vaccine effectiveness. And what he shows is that if you do that, then you often find that the vaccines are only about 50% effective against against COVID deaths. And so then uh, you just so then you halve it and you end up basically with almost zero effectiveness. I don't know if I've explained that brilliantly, but if you go and read his analysis, then you'll see, then, then he will explain it much better, I think, uh, than I have. But it basically shows that once you allow for this healthy this healthy vaccinated bias underlying effect uh, than the actual true vaccine effectiveness against serious disease and death actually turns out to be much closer to zero. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm sure the listener will get it. I slightly missed it because we had some connection problems on our live call, which won't be on the recording. For a second, well, I thought you'd uh, had the jab and you were just having a sort of uh, seizure, but it was actually just the internet. <laughs> Luckily, that's something we don't have to worry about since uh, we're pure blood. We'll never, we'll never collapse on a football field. Actually, I should not say that because I'm playing football tonight. Touchwood forever. 
I could when I could just collapse from unfitness. Sorry about that. That was a digression, Will. <laughs> um, so we've got one more story, which is uh, which is in the climate sphere. Net zero plan is not credible and risks lights going out, MPs warn, as they suggest government policies should be for people not to have cars. So I like the start of the sentence, net zero is not credible. I'm like, yes. Then I'm like, hang on, no cars? Sorry? What's going on, Will? Yes, this was a bit of a bit of a strange story. So it looked like the um, the Public Accounts Committee of, of Parliament, a committee, a powerful uh, a committee in Parliament of MPs, uh, was saying that was coming out all uh, net zero sceptic and saying, "Oh, these are uh, it's not credible that and risk the light going out." These all these net these net zero plans, you know, ludicrous plans that uh, that the government has to try to get us off fossil fuels. And the, the committee is criticising the government's net zero plans and is saying they're inadequate. Uh, but what it's really saying is that uh, they need to do better and and find out other ways of doing it. So they say that. Uh, so they point out that basically we only have 12 years left um, and that we're still producing 40% of our electricity with gas. We're only at 25% of the necessary capacity for nuclear, uh, solar and winds to hit uh, the, the, the 2035 target. So, you know, only a quarter of the capacity. And uh, and as we know that um, it's mainly in solar and offshore uh, wind, which is unreliable. And so we would need more nuclear. The nuclear plans have not been moving forward very fast. So they're very, very critical of these things. Uh, and, and also pointing out that the cost is falling on taxpayers and bill payers uh, can hardly afford these costs and and also keeping the lights on. So it all sounds very sceptical and we're all we're cheering along. And then all of a sudden you realise that, of course, they're still signed up to net zero uh, insanity. They're still signed up to climate alarmism. Uh, so then they start trying to, off the top of their head, it seems, uh, come up with with solutions to this. Their main one uh, being, oh, demand management, which of course, as we know, is a euphemism for becoming poorer. Uh, and in particular, in this, they suggest that maybe people should be discouraged from having cars um, or using their cars. So this is, um, and so this is the latest example of people realizing that net zero isn't isn't going to work. That these all these technologies that we're using are not going to be adequate under the time frame that we've um, that we've given ourselves, or arguably ever, uh, to uh, to achieve this uh, insane goal. And so they're coming up with the idea that maybe we all just need to have less, do less, may- maybe own nothing and be happy, Nick. Yeah. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, it all comes back to eat the bugs and be happy, doesn't it? It's funny how it always comes back to that. They didn't specifically mention bugs in this, but I'm sure when you're just there in your non-car with your little push bike, you're supposed to have a basket on the front with just a series of bugs that you just eat when your protein gets too low. I'm not sure how it works exactly, Will, but like you're right. Own nothing, be happy, eat the bugs, no cars. I'm, I'm sure Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance are, as we speak, uh, coming up with the guidance and, and rules that we will have to follow with our bugs uh, and how it'll work. It'll be prescribed to the minute detail of, of how many bugs you have to carry and where you have to carry them. You have to wear the, you have to carry them strapped to your face so that they're uh, <laughs> so they're ready to eat. Yeah, well, tune in next week to see how many grasshoppers will be allowed to eat. Uh, but thanks for those stories. We're very serious. Obviously, I added some some sort of color, color to them in my typical comedic fashion, but they were, of course, very important stories. And we'll catch up with you again next week. Great, thanks, Nick. All right, so that was Will, and now I'm going to read our second advert. So this comes from the Stack Assistant, and they say, They will ban it, say Bitcoin's detractors, but India, Russia, and even China have tried and failed, and the woke West can't even keep banned drugs out of prisons, let alone off the streets. If there is a demand, then markets always find a way, and there certainly is demand. In just the last few weeks, Fidelity, Citadel, and Charles Schwab are opening up Bitcoin to their customers, and HSBC plans to follow. 
BlackRock has filed for a Bitcoin ETF, and in the fiat world, they get what they want. Wisdom Tree, ARK, and iShares can see the writing on the wall and have followed suit. When the ETFs launch, the pension funds can, at last, pile in. Bitcoin is the lifeboat to the fiat world Titanic, and without it, the pension fund Ponzi's are doomed to hit an iceberg. There is room on the Bitcoin lifeboat for everyone, but the discount on safe passage will not last forever. At the Stack Assistant, we offer free advice to help you stack your first sats, as the subunits of Bitcoin are called, and securing your stack into self-custody. So email us on thestackassistant at pm.me. That's the S-T-A-C-K assistant at pm.me. All right. So now let's do our occasional section, which is Birdwatch. So I got a few things in a Birdwatch this week, Toby. So the first one I thought I'd go with was this Davina McCall thing. Now, she put out a little tweet here about a podcast called The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. And she said, this really is a very interesting and balanced podcast. Highly recommend. And this led to all sorts of people saying, oh, disappointing turf piling in and other people defending her. Just this one very, very mild tweet. And I thought I'd add a similar-ish tweet where Judy Murray, Andy Murray's mum, of course, wrote It's Arrived. And she had a picture of Unfair Play, Sharon Davis's new book, which I believe you're doing a, a book launch for. So just these two tweets were quite interesting because they got quite a lot of attention. And it's just a tiny hint of mainstream sort of figures like Davina or you know Judy Murray saying, hey, we, we're not necessarily on board with this you know, radical trans movement. And we're maybe more on the so-called turf side, just little hints. And of course, they got some blowback, but they got a lot of support. What did you think? Yeah, I think it's uh, definitely a positive sign. Um, uh, there was a, a conference of free speech warriors, for want of a better word, last week in London. Um, it was a conference organized by um, Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi, a guy called Andrew Lowenthal, who had been involved in the Twitter files. And, um, and, and it was great to be able to say to these folks when they you know arrived in london got off the plane looking around it's great to be able to say to them welcome to turf island <laughs> um and uh it which is supposed to be a slur um uh, about britain that the trans lobby used but i'm i'm beginning to i think i think we can i think we can i think we can turn that around and turn it into a badge of pride and it increasingly seems to be the case that um, uh, more and more people, more mainstream people, are effectively outing themselves as turfs, which is fantastic. You said a badge of pride there. Pride might not be the word, of course, because they've co-opted that word into their endless month, which seems to go on for forever. Uh, but it's funny you say turf. Welcome to Turf Island. I, I just suddenly thought of one of those Disney rides. I used to go on like, "Welcome <laughs> to Turf Island." Now entering, and it's like you got J.K. Rowling and stuff. That would be that would be a great ride. Um, it just came to my head. Just a surreal That's bit a of fun for you. Um, and the other bird watch I thought I'd point out was Elon Musk. Judy Murray oh. firing tennis balls at you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to hit them back rapidly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That'd be Kelly amazing. J. Keen bursting out, covered with blood, going. Ah! <laughs> 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 yeah, that'd be yeah. great. Um, Turf Island. So let's do this one as well. Elon Except, Musk. You know, sc sc oh, scary, oh. The, scary that you think the Turf Island ride is. You know, maybe one out of five rides, it could take a wrong turn and you end up in a 
a kind of a Kubrick-esque <laughs> hospital called the Tavistock, where right. these kind of hatchet-faced Wokies come up to you and say, with, with kind of shears and say, time to remove your bits, time to remove your bits. <laughs> Someone else with some pills marked, sterilizing pills. I think you should take these pills. They're lovely. <laughs> come on, yeah. children, take one of these pills. Um, You're right, actually. Yeah. It, no, it, the, it, go on. <laughs> As you say, the, the child catcher appears from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Anyway. <laughs> no, yeah. you're right. It should incorporate that. Not just everyone in five. That should be part of the ride. I was thinking, yeah, you go through a changing room at one point. And there's all these men with like beards and like pink hair descend on you in the changing room. And then you, but you get through that. That'd be like the scary bit in the middle. But you get through that and you're welcomed at the end by J.K. Rowling. And then she gives you yeah, a no, Harry it should be, it should be, it should, Yeah, no, it's, it's like a... Harry yeah, Potter's like, Turf like, Island. Like, <laughs> no, I think, I think you know, start. This is it. No, it's kind of like it's kind of like uh, the Trans World Tour, and you start out, you know, in the Tavistock, and then you go to an American high school, um, and, and you kind of you con- and, and you have to get changed, um, uh, surrounded by fat bearded men wearing kind of crotchless panties, and and then, but eventually you end up on Turf Island, and that's the kind of that's that's the, that's the kind of that's that's the oasis. That's right. the yeah, that's the safe haven. Or it could be a game like be a board game, which you have to get to Turf Island to save your stop your children being mutilated by the child catchers. Maybe you start on Turf Island and it's all slow and like welcome to Turf Island. Then suddenly you go plunge down, like you said before, <laughs> you plunge down into the sort of yeah the changing rooms, the Tavistock. You go through all that. And then eventually you get back to Turf Island at the end. You get out of it. That could be one. One of the yeah. one of the dark moments is Elliot Page pops up and starts talking about how much joy he has in his life, like a kind of just like a kind of dead faced animatronic Elliot Page. You know what I mean? That could be a part of yeah. it. Yeah, and then yeah, and then 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 a kind of puppet of Jordan Peterson appears, going, "You are not beautiful." <laughs> uh, yeah. Sorry, not beautiful. Yeah, not a bloody, not a bloody man either. Yeah, just a dead naming. Um, yeah, he, yeah, yeah, it's a good idea. I mean, I can't see anything wrong with that idea or anything controversial about it. Actually, I think Disney should. At one point, at one, at one point, that you, you could end up that you could be the, the wagon could take you into a prison cell, and you look around and there are these kind of apparently attractive women, and suddenly they rip open their prison garb to reveal that they've got hairy <laughs> chests and penises. They start leering at you. <laughs> They're not women, they're monsters. Um, <laughs> I can't say that, obviously. Um, wow. That was just a reference to League of Gentlemen. They're not children, they're monsters. Um, okay, yeah, that's Turf Island then. Send in your suggestions, guys. <laughs> that's, maybe that'll be the title of this episode. Um, so the other thing, and let's finally get on to it, was Elon Musk... Just another part of Birdwatch. Elon Musk said that the words cis and cisgender are now considered slurs on Twitter and suggested that repeated targeted use of those words could be subject to suspensions. And this was in a response to James S's, who is a forthcoming guest on my podcast, The Current Thing. And he said he'd been sort of attacked with a slew of messages from trans activists who were critical of a previous post in which he rejected the term cis and said he no longer wants to be described that way. And what they do is they often do that. They just, they launch things like, oh, sissy boy, cis boy, you know, cis... This is, and it's, of course, one of the central ironies of the radical trans movement that they insist on calling you a label, even though they're obsessed with being called the correct pronoun, the correct gay male hologram. You say, by the way, I don't like the word cis because I find it demeaning. And they're like, ah, you're cis. And that's one of the central absurd hypocrisies. Yeah, and, and the the it also sounds like sissy. So it sounds like a homophobic slur, doesn't it? Mm, exactly. Um, and there isn't much love lost between 
the T's and the H's. Um, no. So perhaps that is how it's intended. But the question is, Toby, as a free speech advocate, whether you approve of Musk saying that cis and cisgender would be considered slurs and you could get suspended if you use them in a targeted way. And there's a couple of arguments here. The free speech argument, a pure free speech thing is like, well, of course they should be allowed to say it, just like anyone can say anything. But then the argument of someone like Michael Knowles is, he talks about speech standards and how our conception of free speech already incorporates certain standards. And he says, no, no, one of them's true and one of them isn't. So if you want to call someone something they're not, you know, they call them the wrong sex or something, that's actually false. Whereas calling someone cis is a kind of made up thing. I mean, people like Steve Allen have argued on my show when it's a scientific subset, it just means a kind of, it's technically true according to some sort of, well, I think it's pseudoscience, but but Michael Knowles' argument is it's not the same. It's not even equivalent because one of them is talking about truth, that sex is real and, you know, we can't change sex. And one of them is talking about a fantasy. What do you think? That sounds like um, a double standard to me. No, I think as a free speech um, uh, lobbyist, um, I'd, I would defend people who get kicked off the platform for using the word cis, just as I, I have defended women who've been kicked off the platform for refusing to use the preferred gender pronouns of trans identifying tweeters. Um, so yeah, I think, I don't think, I don't think you can, I don't think you can, you know, I mean, who's going to decide whether it's true or not. Um, you get into difficulty when, I mean, that that's the basis for the whole um, censorship industrial complex, their claim to, um, uh, be stewards of the truth of what is factual and what's false, what's accurate, what's misleading. Um, and the problem is you can't trust anyone author in, in authority to make those decisions without bringing their own political biases into it. And yeah, I wouldn't trust Michael Knowles, I'm afraid, uh, uh, to, to, to accurately make that call every time. <laughs> I would. But what about the harassment element where now I talked to Andrew Doyle on my other podcast about this, the current thing It's our most downloaded episode. I urge you to check it out. We talked about when the words are the and it's not the so it's when the words become a weapon to incitement for example in the, in the example of incitement which even the first amendment has in their fighting words when you use words as incitement to violence directly and immediately there's a sort of temporal element you the crime therefore is the incitement not the words the words are just being used as a weapon and so people get it confused with free speech so if the argument here is that it's harassment when used in this targeted way is that a caveat that actually it's not even the cis phrase, but it's the cis phrase used as a weapon to basically harass someone in a way that Musk is saying is banned? Well, I think, yeah, but I don't think Musk should have gone down that particular pathway. Um, I don't think people, I don't think people do have a right to protect themselves from, you know, being, being verbally harassed. Um, there's this kind of illusion when people complain about harassment. They make it sound like sexual harassment, which sounds like assault. Um, uh, but actually, someone someone not using your preferred gender pronouns doesn't, I don't think, harm you in any way. Um, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. I don't think words are weapon, I don't, weapons, and I don't think that... Um, you know, misgendering someone is a species of violence. That's often the claim made. Again, these two claims are often elided. But people say, if you don't affirm the self-diagnosis of trans-identifying teens in particular, i.e. if you don't use their preferred gender pronouns, they might commit suicide. So even though 
using the wrong pronouns isn't a form of violence. It can lead to self-harm, so it can lead to harm, and therefore it's legitimate to prevent people from doing that. That's a legitimate restriction on their free speech. But um, And then they, then they often then segue from that into actually claiming that merely using a person's, merely refusing to use a person's preferred gender pronouns is itself a form of violence. It's a form of sexual violence. Uh, and in fact, um, a, a Mexican civil rights leader, former politician, has just been successfully prosecuted, convicted in a Mexican court for misgendering um, a current Mexican politician and the crime he's been convicted of and all he's done is to misgender this woman, uh, this man rather, um, all he's done, uh, uh, that, that's all he's done and it's been described as sexual violence. So I think you get on a very slippery slope if you think that people have a right that trumps other people's right to free speech not to hear things they find disagreeable or which they politically disapprove of, which supposedly cause them psychological harm. That's always very subjective and nebulous and vague. Mm. And and anyway, you know, people say things that are pretty unpleasant to us all the time. And um, uh, on Twitter, you know, um, if we wanted to play, snow, play the victim card, we could easily claim that we find that psychologically harmful. We wouldn't be given the time of day. So neither should the trans activists. So the Mexican example, you just reminded me, I wanted to include that in peak woke, but I forgot. But yes, on the other point, well, no, the only times words are arguably weapons is if you're, is the incitement example, you're, you're a demagogue whipping up a crowd and you say, get him, and, it's, and so then you all pile on the guy, then, then that's the argument. But, but yeah, in terms of harassment, the only thing I'll add to that though, Toby, is that in reality, yeah, and although I am called a right-wing bellend and a massive bellend and various versions of the C word every day, and you get it even worse, but the... The caveat, though, is that if someone was throwing, let's say, the N-word at someone repeatedly, I'm sure they would be banned from Twitter or any sort of similar words. So this thing about, we may not agree with it, this slur, cis being a slur, but then you'd have to say they should be able to just say the N-word to someone repeatedly as well, right? Yeah, I think I think the, well, the Free Speech Union, we, we, we have a statement of values and we say we won't defend your right to free speech if you are only exercising that right in order to um, uh, stop others from exercising their right to free speech. And I do think that some forms of extreme abuse, particularly racial abuse, clearly are designed to uh, shut that, shut the person you're abusing out of the conversation to deprive them of their right to free speech. And we don't defend people who exercise their right to free speech purely to do that. Hmm, interesting. I personally don't really see a distinction between any kind of, I mean, I get called horrific things. They don't, they may not have a racial component. If you get called gammon, that does have a racial component. Now Elon Musk is adding cis. I'm not sure. I kind of think it's all the same. I think it's either incitement or it's not. And if it's not, then it's all perhaps in the same category. I would, I, I think I probably would say that. I don't think, because it's gammon a slur, for example, it's it's pretty much a racial slur. No one's going to probably argue it has this same historic weight as the N word, but they are. But it is clearly a racial slur. So you know, what what category is that in? I mean, should you be able to harass someone by repeatedly calling them a gammon? And if you should, which I think you probably should, then you probably should be able to harass them with racial terms as well, shouldn't you? Tricky, isn't it? It's tricky, but um, I I think I think I think repeatedly calling someone a gammon um is um 
less likely to make them withdraw from a platform like Twitter than repeatedly calling someone the N-word. Um, it feels like a more direct assault on someone else's right to free speech than um, than, 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 than the word gammon. To me, but, that's subjective. I mean, never, I mean never, you're harassing someone with a certain word. I, I'm called horrible things. Maybe I retreat from the platform just as much as someone call a specific racial slur. I think your your standard there is so subjective. I, I couldn't see how you'd uphold it, really. Well, I suppose you could... You could you could um, you you could do some empirical research to see what kinds of insults are more likely to uh, get get people to shut up and withdraw from conversations and withdraw from platforms. I mean that, that is one of the that's one of the arguments uh, that's actually often used for um, policing platforms like Twitter, um, which is that if you allow people to um, uh, abuse one another using words like the n-word then you're um, uh, effectively excluding people of color from participation in the conversation in the digital square uh, and I think within limits I think that's quite a good argument I mean another argument for for for, for policing Twitter um, uh, uh, not as aggressively as it was policed before Elon Musk bought it is that um, if, if you just allow anything, if it's a complete free-for-all, if it's a Wild West, um, then it's not going to be a very pleasant place to be. Um, there ought to be some rules of decorum that are respected um, uh, because if people are going to have you know, intelligent conversations and it's going to be a relatively pleasant environment that people want to be in, and you can sort of understand why for business reasons freedom of association should allow whoever owns Twitter to impose certain rules of decorum, but they shouldn't take that. They shouldn't, they shouldn't allow their desire to keep it a relatively civilized um, environment to be weaponized by political activists to essentially brand anything they find disagreeable as harassment or hate speech, um, which I think is what happened in the case of the trans activists and the banning of people like Kelly J. Keene. All right. Well, I don't, I don't want to spend forever on this, but it just struck me that is it worse to be called a Nazi than the N-word? I mean, getting called a Nazi is pretty extreme. It's, it's much worse. If you get called something like the N-word, everyone's going to rally around you in this society and protect you. But if you're called a Nazi, you know, it, it, it's an attempt to completely cancel you from society. So I, that's another debate. Is that worse to be called? You know what I mean? So that's, I suppose that goes into defamation then. And this question, does it fall under defamation? And maybe that's a bit boring. So... I can move on if you can. And um, maybe let's do everyone's favourite section, which is Peak Woke. So I had one here, Toby, from this guy, Dermot Kennedy, who's apologised to the Irish traveller community after using a racial slur in an interview. And the slur was the word knacker, which he even caveated by saying... If you call somebody a knacker, he said that there's a word knackered to use tiredness, but then he said, but if you call someone a knacker, that's really bad because a knacker is, to the best of my knowledge, like a horse in the yard that's dying. But it's like a classic thing, like if you were sitting at a table and someone took your food, you'd be like, ah, you knacker. And then he apologized and said, I'd like to apologize to the Irish traveler community for any offense caused when discussing Irish slang in a recent interview. I was not referring to anyone specific, and I never mean to cause harm with the words I say, so I'm sorry for any distress I've caused. He was really just explaining it to someone who didn't know the term. And 
and I didn't even know if it, I didn't even know that it was a, a I had no idea it was a, a slur in that sense anyway I don't know it seemed a bit peak woke to me Tommy yeah pretty odd I mean when I when when um I read the story I think in the Daily Mail um saying that he'd caused uproar by using a word which was very offensive to the traveler community um i i read i was trying to find out what the word was and i was sort of scanning the article read it down to the bottom and it said another word he used was knackered and he explained to the presenter what that meant as he was asked to volunteer these slang terms irish slang terms i hadn't thought of as knackered as an irish slang term maybe it is um but then i thought well so what is the other word it must have been something much worse than that you know i assumed it was the G word, um, but um, uh, but but actually the other word which the male found too offensive to risk mentioning uh, was knacker. Um, that apparently is a is a racial slur. But why? I mean, it, 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 he he the way he presented it in talking to the presenter was um, it's like if you knacker somebody, as in if you cause them to be knackered, then you're a knacker. Um, uh, which, and I, I was, I, which, um, so why is it, what, it doesn't seem to have any relationship to, um, or nothing specific to the, you know, the Romany communities. So I don't understand it at all. Yeah. The, the, a knacker is just an Irish term for, for gypsy, but I, I didn't know either, but I mean. Is it? Okay. Apparently. Yeah. So, apparently. It's, so it's got nothing to do with knackered, which just means exhausted. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's the same etymology, to be honest with you. I, I don't know. Because I was talking about the story as well, because it was one of those that some of the articles didn't even say the word, like it was so bad. Yeah. You get those articles now, they won't even say the word, so you can't figure out what it's about. Yep. Uh, but it turned out the word wasn't even that bad anyway, or I don't think it was that bad. <clears throat> but um, all right, that's that one. What do you have, Toby? Well, I, I was going to mention a sort of meta peak woke, which is... Um, it's actually, I did get the name of this uh, right. It's the Criminal Justice Incitement to Violence or Hatred and Hate Offences Bill, um, which is uh, currently going through the Irish Parliament. And it has sailed through the Dáil and is currently being debated in the Senate. Um, but it's going to be the Senate, once a bill has passed uh, the Dáil, um, uh, cannot reject it. It can only amend it and send it back to the lower house. And I, I, in certain circumstances, if those amendments are rejected, um, it, 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 the um, uh, supporters of the amendment can uh, uh, bring in the Supreme Court, who then rule on the constitutionality of the bill as originally drafted. Uh, or if they get enough signatures from fellow legislators, they can force the government to hold a referendum uh, but it looks as though you know the best that can happen with this bill at the moment is that it can be amended uh, and that those amendments will be accepted and then it'll pass in a slightly less egregious form but it is it, it it'll 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 impose the most dr- draconian uh, speech restrictions um uh, in ireland more draconian than anywhere else in the eu um and so for instance um uh you can be um it'll be an offense punishable by up to five years in jail to incite hatred against uh someone based on their protected characteristic of race color nationality religion disability sexual orientation and gender amongst other protected characteristics and according to critics of the bill the inclusion of gender means that if you misgender a trans person you could go to jail for up to five years um and um 
we know that um, trans activists frequently uh, claim that misgendering, even defining a woman as an adult human female, all examples of hate speech. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility that someone could actually be prosecuted under this, under the anti-hate speech provisions in this bill for misgendering a trans person. But it actually, it's actually worse than that because under one of the clauses in the new bill, merely possessing material likely to incite hatred will be a criminal offence, even if you never actually intend to share it with any, well, even if you never actually share it with anyone. But I think to be prosecuted, the state would have to show that you intended to show it to someone, even though you didn't. Um, but that's pretty sinister. And it's quite, it's quite hard to determine exactly what someone's intentions are. And um, uh, uh, if, if the person being prosecuted for possession of this verboten material cannot persuade the court um, that they only had it for personal use, then the onus of proof will be on them to demonstrate that they didn't intend to distribute it. So the bill actually reverses the burden of proof as in a witch trial, guilty until proven innocent. Um, And so it's got all sorts of ghastly clauses like that. And there's a couple of clauses intended to protect freedom of expression, but they're extremely weak and very unlikely um, uh, to um, cut much ice in the courts. Um, And uh, there is actually an organization, Free Speech Ireland, which is campaigning against the bill. I've written about it in The Spectator this month. I'm sorry, this week. Uh, but actually, I, w- I wanted to close with this, Will. Um, I, 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 on the basis of, of this, this, this bill in Ireland, I've come up with what I'm calling um, Young's First Law. So you're familiar with O'Sullivan's First Law, which is that all organizations that are not actually right-wing will over time become left-wing. That's a Robert, Robert Conquest. Some people mistakenly believe that that is Robert Conquest's second law, but actually it's John O'Sullivan's first law. Um, Look it up on Wikipedia. Um, Poor old John O'Sullivan. It's often attributed to his friend, Robert Conquest, but actually it was his. But I want to come up You just called me Will and I'm called Nick, so that's another quite big error. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, so... So, so Young's first law is the more progressive a country is when it comes to sex and gender, the more authoritarian it is when it comes to speech and language. Um, and that's certainly true of Ireland, which for you know 1,500 years uh, lived under the yoke of Catholic oppression. It has just got out from under that yoke. You know, abortion wasn't made illegal uh, until five years ago. Same-sex marriage legal. was only made legal in 2015. Um, sorry, sorry. what did I say? Yeah, you said abortion wasn't was made only, illegal. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, sorry. Abortion was legalized in 2018, but not until, until then it was illegal. Um, uh, anyway, so it's only recently become, you know, uh, sexually much less repressed, much more anything goes. But when countries become much more progressive when it comes to sex and gender, recognize gay marriage, put all kinds of protections in for trans people, uh, teach the LGBTQ agenda in schools and the rest of it. They become much more authoritarian when it comes to speech and language. And it isn't just Ireland. It's obviously also um, Scotland, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, um, uh, America to a great extent, uh, and Mexico, as we learned earlier in this podcast. So that's that's Young's first law. Hope it'll catch on. Well, it's, it's catchy, but of course, it's because they're not progressive anyway. It's because all those things you name are just are authoritarian in nature 
anyway, so, you know, it, it, that's the answer, isn't it, really? That all those things are, are just posing as progressive. Uh, so that's the mm, reason. Well, it, I mean, from the point of view of someone, I mean, from the point of view of a gay man who wants to marry his lover, being allowed to do that in a church um, feels like, feels progressive. It must feel progressive to you. Um, you know, you're allowed to sexually express yourself and engage in sexual practices that until fairly recently in Ireland, as recently as, well, in the case of marrying your same-sex partner, you couldn't do until eight years ago. Um, uh, the pr promiscuity was still so frowned upon. You couldn't get an abortion in Ireland until five years ago. Um, uh, it must feel as though, you know, that the country's become much freer and in that sense, more progressive, you know, um, uh, in the last 10 years. Um, but at the same time, as it becoming freer in that respect, it becomes much less free in what you're able to say. And it's mm. just, it strikes me as it's sort of almost, it, it's more of a paradox, I think, that you're acknowledging. I think the explanation is that, um, that uh, people just can't cope with, the freedom, you know, as soon as they become free in one area of life, you know, that's enough freedom for them. They're, psychologically, they can't cope with any more freedom than that. So they have to shut down freedom in another area of life because it's, you know, it's a zero sum trade off. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I can see you don't want me to take your paradox away. It depends if you think, you know, like Andrew Dorr, that you had liberalism and then that wokeness was a sort of authoritarian detour or whether you think it is a continuation. Yeah, whether you think it's a continuation of liberalism into this progressivism, or whether you think it's like Turf Island when you suddenly turn off into the changing room and actually it's a completely it's a different phenomenon. Well, I think I've got a well, I think it's um, I've got a slightly different explanation, which is that um, it's almost like we've taken on um, the character of the Soviet Union and its Eastern European. Um, uh, satellites. So one of the characteristics of the Soviet Union, uh, as compared to the West during the Cold War, is that you did enjoy more sexual freedom in the Soviet Union um, than you did um, in in the supposedly decadent West. Uh, but you but you had much less free speech and you had much less political freedom. Um, and that, it feels as though having conquered the Soviet Union in the Cold War, we've now absorbed, like the, the Soviet Union's revenge on the West was we've absorbed a lot of that totalitarian culture into our into our bloodstream, into our institutions. Machiavelli warned about this in um, Discourses on Livy. He said that one of the ways in which conquered countries avenge themselves on their conquerors is that they transmit their culture into the culture of the conquering countries uh, and they they take on the character some of the worst characteristics they they guard against them vigilantly when they're at war with these countries or when they're mortal enemies um because uh, because they don't want to be corrupted by too much contact with the culture of the enemy but once they defeat them you know they let their defenses down and they absorb some of the characteristics that they previously detested and that seems to have been what's happened in the west since the end of the cold war why this new authoritarianism is now so ubiquitous across liberal democracies hmm, very interesting yeah i mean carl benjamin spoke about it in another way he talked about Rousseau and 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 this is being a sort of apotheosis of Rousseauian liberalism where you have everything permitted under the state so 
you have sort of authoritarianism with kind of decadence so you can sleep with anyone but it's all within a kind of authoritarian kind of under the state which is kind of what you're saying we have but yeah that's interesting that we've we've sort of taken it on from soviet russia one last thing on that your island point is good and i saw the video about that and the woman was saying this is for the common good and i know that whenever anyone says the common good they're about to do something really bad have you noticed that yes that's always the excuse of tyrants and dictators you know down the ages isn't it it's for the common good that i'm taking away your freedom exactly and um so i might move on from pete woke toby unless you have any more just because i'm getting so hungry i'm actually flagging because i'm on this calorie restricted diet and have been for weeks and i've noticed the last couple of podcasts i can barely get to the end and this is another two-hour epic one it's supposed to be a shorter one this is another way in which um people who can't cope with too much freedom um impose um uh, restrictions on themselves, um, like you with your diet and me with my <laughs> diet. It's like, you know, f- it, sexually anything goes. When it comes to food, we become like, you know, um, unbelievably authoritarian, self-policing kind of kitchen cops. Yeah, and I'm not even self-policing because I've got a German trainer to just check <laughs> right, what I'm eating and shout perfect, at me. <laughs> perfect, perfect, yeah. <laughs> yeah it, well, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm, I have lost a lot of weight, but it's uh, and also keeping my muscle, which is very hard. Unlike Lewis Schaefer, who keeps trolling me online saying exercise is bad and you should just eat less. It's like, all right, Lewis, if you want to be weak and thin, but I'm trying to keep my strength here, bro. So are you happy to move on and do some reviews, Toby? Let's move on, yeah. I've got one here that really is not very nice about you, so I probably won't read it. It is quite interesting, but... I know you've got, you know, fragile ego. So maybe we'll leave that and just do the good one. one. (laughs) We'll leave that one. We'll do this one, which says, uh, I lie by my phone waiting for this to drop. What a salve in today's utterly bewildering world. He and Nick, he never actually says Toby. He just assumes that you're you're just he. But anyway, he and Nick use a mixture of logic, skepticism, wit, jokes, life experience to cut apart key items in the effluvia that washes over us. They show us how to think sensibly, when all around us is beyond understanding. Men are women. Other people will kill you by breathing. Children can be cats or the moon. What a discovery Nick Dixon is. Funny, charming, frank. He is so open we can feel our own sensibilities evolving as his does. Hmm. And Toby, I have followed, read, listened to since the modern review. His recent initiatives, protecting free speech, supporting skepticism, mean he is now my lodestar. I rely on him to debunk all the nonsense and help me not spiral off into lunacy. And that comes from Mr. Smallhouse. What a review, Toby. Nice. Yeah, very nice about both of us. Yeah, that's got to be uh, one of the best <laughs> we've had. Thank you, Mr. Smallhouse. Yeah, it rarely happens. Mainly they're good about me, but that was about both of us. And, um, and yeah, maybe I'll just leave it on that one because the other ones, you know, are sort of, you know, they're very like, nice about me. Um, but I think I'm not going to top that one. Thanks so much for all your reviews. I can't speak because I'm at the end of the podcast. I'm running out of calories. I've only had one sandwich. I've got to play football. It's hot. It's all very tough, guys. And thanks for your suggestions about where to move. I'm now just going to stay in my area. I've found an option. I'll, I'll keep you updated, but I may have found a way to actually stay in my area and get something because I've realized I don't want to leave London. The paradox, here's a paradox for you, Toby. Speaking of paradoxes, I love London, particularly my area. I've lived here since 2009. I can't leave. I have my brother and my nephews and niece and my football team and my gym and the, the beautiful, beautiful woods we have here. Hate the people. They're all woke scum, <laughs> but love the area. That's the paradox. Uh, so I can't possibly leave it. 
Well, you know, um, uh, it's, it's a first world problem. I don't suppose you'll generate much sympathy there. I'm, I'm going to end up buying a house in the rather posh North London area that I'm already <laughs> living in. Um, pity me, re- listeners. Um, no, but, but yeah. the only way I can do it is shared ownership. So I think I should get some pity because you're there in your massive house and you're so decadent, you don't even live in it. You're just like, I'll, just, I'll live in the shed like an eccentric billionaire. Yeah. No, I, 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 well, you're coming to dinner, aren't you, on Thursday, as is Will Jones. And um, I, was, I was very pleased to be able to say when Will uh, contacted me to say, is there anywhere I can park near you, somewhere within a one-mile radius at the most? And I said, yes, you can park in my driveway, Will. <laughs> oh, and why were you so proud of that? Because uh, you just you have a driveway. That's it. Yeah, I'm bragging. Nice, nice. But but why are your cars not on it? You you have a driveway, but no car. Uh, I've got one car. <laughs> but no, the driveway's big enough for two, Nick. Oh, sweet. Yeah, well, you've made it, Toby. <laughs> We're in a different world. You made it before things got so hard. But I'm coming up in this alternative media landscape, and it's very, very tough. And um, that's why I'm not eating, Toby. I didn't want to say the real reason is I can't, I can't afford food. But I've sold it as a kind of, uh, you know, I've got a sort of modern diet thing going on. <laughs> um, anything else you want to plug, Toby? I say anything else. You haven't actually plugged anything except your driveway. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd find that funny. I didn't think you'd like get all chippy about it. Um, so, uh, yeah, well, I'd like to promote um, the uh, party you mentioned earlier that uh, the Free Speech Union is holding the book launch for Sharon Davis's uh, new book, which Judy Murray and um, Davina McCall have just said they bought. Um, it should be a great night. It's on uh, July 5th. Um, uh, if you're a Free Speech Union member, it's only £10 a ticket. If you're not a member, it's £20. You might as well. Join the Free Speech Union, get a £10 ticket, comes with a free drink. There's going to be a panel of um, really interesting people discussing the book with Sharon. She's going to be there selling books and signing them at the party July 5th. And if you want to come to that, there are still a few tickets left. Um, You can even actually, if you're not a member of the FSU, you can watch it online for a fiver. But if you are a member, you can watch it online for free. The whole thing will be televised on live streamed um and um yeah if you want to come uh, go to my twitter at toadmeister and it's my pin tweet is a link to where you can buy a ticket okay and i wouldn't mind just quickly plugging my other podcast the current thing about i'm getting about half the listeners we get now so people are getting there they are getting there but everyone should be listening to it who's listening to weekly skeptic there's simply no excuse i mean we just had calvin robinson on even if you don't like calvin we had dominic frisbee who doesn't like him andrew doyle lord frost andrew lawrence We've had Richard Tice. I'm just looking through some of the episodes. So good. And they're all great. We've got a 4.9 star rating, uh, 1.1 higher than Weekly Skeptic because of some of those, you know, sort of uh, meanies who have given us a bad rating. And it's doing very well. So please go to the current thing as well. If you're listening to this podcast, I can't think of any conceivable reason why you wouldn't, unless you just really love Toby and hate me. I suppose there must be a few. There must be one or two. That probably is. That probably is half our audience. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> that could be it. All right. Well, that was another epic episode. I thought we'd do a short one this week. I didn't think there was that much to talk about. We've done two hours. Ridiculous, but don't say we don't give value for money. So there it is, and we'll see you again next week. But until then, stay sceptical. Stay sceptical. Stay sceptical.